In the decade of the 1970s, even the great hero Superman was not spared the ravages of money-hungry producers. In these times of fear and confusion, the job of bringing him to screen was the responsibility of Richard Donner, a popular American director whose demand for verisimilitude had become a symbol of hope for fans of Superman. Welcome to episode 118 of the Man Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to complete my coverage of Superman the Movie, basically the last quarter of the film from Lois Lane's interview with the Indian Chief, straight on through the the end of the movie, the final scene where Superman flies off into the uh, into the night and off camera. I know I covered the scene with the Indian Chief last week when I spoke with Andrew Leyland, but what happened was I didn't realize that the interview with the Indian Chief started a new chapter. The chapters on the Blu-rays aren't labeled, they're just numbered. So when I saw the image for chapter 31 on my theatrical cut DVD Blu-ray, I still call them DVD sometimes even though they're Blu-rays. So anyway, when I saw the uh, image of Superman flying to Luthor, I just assumed it started with the message from Luthor, which is just as well. I mean, the COD and the Chief only takes a minute, depending on what version of the film you're watching. So we're going to start there with the Indian Chief and right to the end of the movie. And I will not be alone. I will have one of the two original Two True Freaks, Scott Gardner, a huge fan of Superman the movie, will be on the show, along with Gene Hendricks, who, for those of you who don't know, is the keeper of the Two True Freaks Twitter feed and the writer of the Hammer Strikes blog and uh, the occasional host of the uh, Hammer podcast when he has that going. And a couple of other announcements I want to make. Uh, we talked on the episode two weeks ago with uh, J. David Weider, Bob Fisher, Dario Gonzalez, and Aaron Henley about seeing Superman the movie in the theaters and how several of us have not seen it in the theaters, specifically uh, Dave, myself, and Aaron. Now, I haven't checked with Aaron, and Dave said it's a possibility, but Fathom Events will be showing 40th anniversary screenings of Superman the movie. I will be attending one of them. I have already purchased my ticket for the November 25th showing. It is Sunday after Thanksgiving, so I am going to that with my daughter Haley. I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, I am relatively sure that there will be a podcast episode covering my thoughts on seeing it on the big screen for the first time. I may try to wrangle some others who have not seen it on in the theaters before just to get some other opinions, but nothing is confirmed, so I make no promises, just kind of a thought that's rattling around in my head. 
As I get closer to November 25th, I will make that decision. I'm sure there will be an episode covering, at the very least, my reaction to seeing it on the big screen. I mean, that's really what this podcast is for, don't you think? And, so that's the good news. Now some bad news, depending on your point of view. I have been trying to avoid this for a while, but after Superman the Movie Month, I'm not going away, but I am going to have to put the podcast on hiatus for probably at least through the end of the year. Some things have happened in my personal life that I'm not going to go into here, but they happened. They suck. I'm moving forward. I'll be moving where I live, so I don't necessarily know when I'm going to have my recording stuff set up once I move. It might take a while, so my plan is, initially at least, I'm going to see how things go, and honestly, I got back to editing. For those of you who are following the Facebook group, I had posted a few weeks ago that I couldn't guarantee that Superman the Movie Month would come out on time. Well, things at least here got smooth enough that I will be able to get those episodes out. I'm ahead enough that I am reasonably sure that I will be able to hit the proper release dates for that I planned for Superman the Movie Month, and after this, there'll only be one more episode to go, so there is that. Like I said, pretty sure that I'll be able to hit those dates. But since a little bit, I'll give you a little bit of peek behind the curtain. Since I'm unsure of when I'll be able to record once I move, I'm going to continue producing the next episode in the podcast, at the very least getting them recorded. So even if it takes me a couple of months to get everything set up for a recording space, at least I'll be able to edit and get stuff out. I don't want to rush myself. So my initial plan for now is to come back probably on New Year's Day. New Year's Day is Tuesday, so my goal is to come back strong on in 2019. That doesn't mean that the next episode, episode 119, will be the last episode produced this year. I still plan to do my traditional Christmas episode. I will probably have an episode out at the end of November with uh, talking about my reaction to seeing Superman the movie on the big screen, like I had mentioned a few minutes ago. And there's that CW crossover between Arrow, Supergirl, and The Flash, in which Superman and Lois Lane are going to be a part of, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to be here discussing that as well. And I look to have some guests on for that show. So Just because there won't be any regular episodes after October 30th doesn't mean there won't be some output between now and the end of the year. Just no uh, regular... And actually, I do have a Man of Screen at the Movies, uh, Rocky 2, scheduled between episodes 119 and 120, so I might try to get that out to uh, before January 1st and then come back with episode 120 in January. So there's that. That's my plan going forward. Before I go into uh, the Superman the Movie discussion, I do have some feedback to address. As usual, this feedback is from Dave Beckelveni. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 107. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Huzzah. Challenge of the Super Friends. The Legion of Doom. Lex Luthor. Brainiac. The Hall of Doom. Villains being unmitigated villains. I'm really happy about this. In Rokan, Enemy from Space, I understand Superman's heroic stance that even to risk, at risk of his own life and safety, the Super Friend should use the massive kryptonite asteroid to defeat the Kryptonian monster. But I have to wonder why he stayed on Earth while they did so. He could have flown off to another planet, watched things from, a, from there, and returned to Earth once the danger to him was gone. It's not as if he really participated in the plan. He didn't need to just hang around in the Hall of Justice. In Wanted, the Super Friends, I love that, as you pointed out, the Legion of Doom are very self-aware that they are villains, and unapologetic about it. Of course, that brings to mind my thought when I first read about Sinestro, the renegade Green Lantern. How did the Guardians of the Universe give a ring and power battery to a guy named Sinestro? Did they miss the hint of his name? In any event, I love Luthor's foolproof plan, eliminate the Super Friends, leaving Earth completely open to the Legion of Doom's evil. Well, it wasn't really foolproof, I think it was a decent plan. In The Demons of Exor, you wondered whether all the inhabitants of Exor have superpowers. I don't know the 
quote-unquote canonical answer, if there is one, but the statement from the Exorian official making the expositional phone call to the Wonder Twins that they were sent to learn the skills of justice from the Super Friends suggests to me that their powers are unique, or at least unusual, on Exor, and they were sent for training. The invasion of the Furians shows the Super Friends unwillingly helping the Legion of Doom's plans, which certainly helps show the Legion of Doom to be a formidable foes for the Super Friends. It also shows a bit of squabbling amongst the villains, which, in many stories, but not really this one, proves to be their undoing. It's a nice piece of characterization, though. Live long and prosper, Dave. So, as always, thank you, Dave, for writing in. You know, Dave makes a lot of good points in his letters. There's really nothing I disagree with. I never thought of his question about why Superman stayed on Earth. And I really don't have an explanation, and I'm sure the writers don't have one either. But I guess it would be unheroic for Superman just to fly off. But I guess it would seem unheroic if Superman says, Use the kryptonite, and then goes and hangs out on Alpha Centauri for a few hours. So, yeah, again, I also, Dave also commented on my question about the Exorians, and yeah, I guess so. If they were sent to learn the skills of justice from the Super Friends, that also suggests to me that the Exorians don't really have a very good foundation for justice on their own planet. You know, just the way it seems to me. That's really all I've got on that. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. So right now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with the completion of my initial coverage of Superman the movie. And on the other side of the break, we'll have Scott Gardner and Gene Hendricks. Hang around, folks. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a Back to the Men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. what's my pro- okay. It definitely billed mm-hmm. build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, welcome back, folks. Uh, like I mentioned, this is uh, part four of Superman the Movie Month, and I have two more guests with me to uh, to finish off the movie. I have on my left here, at least on the podcast screen, I have writer of the uh, the, the Hammer Strikes blog and the uh, the master of the Two True Freaks Twitter account, Mister <laughs> Mister Gene Hendricks. I had to think about the name of your blog for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's not exactly the one that rolls off the tongue. But right. thank you for inviting me, Mike. It's good to be here. And then thanks for. Uh, answering the call and uh on my right i have one of the uh one of the co-founders of two true freaks i have uh and he's a co-host on uh back to the bins when the schedule allows him i have scott gardner hey how's it going it's going well and uh one thing i want to say before before we start Mm -hmm. i have a huge debt of gratitude to both you and chris for allowing me to join the network when i did about a year or so ago because without you guys letting me port over here the show would be gone because i couldn't i wouldn't be able to afford to keep up with the with the hosting fees, so I just wanted to. I've spoken to. I've said this to Chris. I just like to thank you for letting me on when you guys did. Oh, we we thank you for joining, man. I mean, it is it's it's our honor and pleasure to uh, to have you as part of the family. So uh, welcome. Thanks. All right. So uh, like like I've done in the uh, in the first uh, three episodes, I've already recorded the fifth one, so it's weird. <laughs> 
Mm. <laughs> but, uh, so we'll just to go around and uh, talk about our experiences. Uh, first, uh, first time we saw the film. So why don't, why don't we start with Scott? What do, what do you remember about seeing this for the first time? Oh gosh, uh, that could be a whole episode. <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I do. I do have very clear memories of going to see it. I, I did see it in the theater. I saw it in uh, the the only theater that existed where I lived at the time, uh, which was in Watertown, New York. It was a little two-screener theater. Uh, it's where I saw uh, a lot of the, the classic movies of my childhood. I saw Star Wars there. I saw The Empire Strikes Back there, uh, Highlander. You, you name an 80s movie. I either saw it there or I saw it at the drive-in. Uh, anyway, my dad took me. Um, I went with my two best friends at the time, um, one of which was not Chris Honeywell. I knew Chris, but we weren't besties yet. Um, that didn't happen until about the time Empire was out when we were in middle school. Uh, so it was me. It was uh, Randy Gardner, who is my uncle, but we are the same age. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing. Um, if you ever listen to Two True Freaks, we talk about him all the time. But, yeah, Randy and I, are, even though he is biologically my uncle, we are only three days apart uh, in age. So we grew up very close together. And, uh, and then another kid uh, whose name was also Scott, it was uh, Scott um, Robinson. And uh, we went, and I remember my dad buying us... Uh, you know, giant buckets of popcorn and sodas and everything. And, uh, you know, as soon as we got into the theater, I remember Scott promptly spilling his and my dad getting all pissed off and angry about it and everything. Um, but my, my two lasting memories beyond, of course, the film itself, which, you know, was, was much like Star Wars was, was something of a religious experience for me seeing Superman the movie, you know, on the big screen as a 10-year-old. The two big memories were something that's never happened to me before or since as we were waiting, we must've gotten there early, which was very uncharacteristic for my dad because we usually got there after the movie had already started. That definitely happened with star Wars. We walked into star Wars when Luke was kneeling in front of R2 just before the hologram comes out. So that tells you how prompt my dad ever was. Uh, but anyway, for Superman the movie, we actually got a tour of the projectionist booth, which, uh, again, is something that had never happened to me before. It never happened to me again. I don't remember the specific circumstances other than I remember walking through and my dad being fascinated. And, and I think my friends were paying attention. But me, I was more you know fascinated with kind of the technology. So I remember very very specifically looking through one of the little tiny holes into a theater where Superman was playing. And I looked through the hole right at the moment of the helicopter sequence. So my very first impression of the movie was that sequence and was just completely mesmerized and blown away by it. And then the other big memory is um, when we come out of, came out of the theater I don't know if this was normal for the time or if this was normal for anybody else or anything, but um, I remember some of the big movies would often have merch available as you would come out of the movie. And for Superman the movie, I specifically remember they had the big DC Comics, that big treasury edition, the, the black cover one with Christopher Reeve, you know, large and in charge on the cover. They had that, and they had... Um, Boxes of kryptonite rocks, glow-in-the-dark kryptonite rocks, which both my dad got me both of those, that treasury edition and the kryptonite rocks. And I don't I I have the treasury edition today, but I don't think it's the original one he bought me. But my uh, kryptonite rocks, listen to this. 
right here in front of me. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they have a permanent home right here on my desktop. So, yeah, I've kept them all these years. I love these things. And they still glow. They're pretty cool. Were those the kryptonite rocks they used to advertise in the comics at the time? I, I'm assuming so. I remember the box had... Um, I think it was a it was a classic Superman from the cover of like I, I think it was the first time they told his origin or something, but it was a classic like barrel chested, uh, you know, late Golden Age, early Silver Age Superman. I think it was a Wayne Boring, but that was the cover on it, and it just said Kryptonite rocks glow in the dark, and you know, I, I don't know whatever became of the box, but I, I've kept the rocks all these years. It's it's pretty cool. I'm sure they had tons of other merch too, but that those are the only ones I remember because those are the only ones my dad got for me. So I thought that was really cool. But yeah, that was that's my memory of going to see it at the at the theater. Um, I don't remember if I saw it multiple times. I don't think I did, but of course I've I've seen it so many times now. I you know could quote it to you backwards. So right, you know we I definitely caught you know a lot of times on HBO, and I think I've bought it in just about every form it's ever existed on home video. So, what was your reaction after seeing it? Um, blow, just completely blown away. I I loved it. I it, to th- to this very day it is it remains my very favorite movie of all time. Um I mean there's lots of other movies that, that had a huge impact. You know, Star Wars had an incredible impact on me and everything, but uh it, it's really it's those two movies I, I cite as having the most, you know, impact on on you know, my life and my personality and and things like that. It was it was those movies combined that you know, set me on a path as a comic book collector, but there's something about Star Wars, excuse me, with Superman that just connected even deeper somehow. Uh, and it, I, I think it was because it, I don't feel like the movie's preachy or anything, but I do feel like it has a good message, if that makes any sense. And and it's just, you know, that Superman's, uh, you know, he, he's a good guy trying to do the right thing for just the right reason. Because, you know, cause he has the power to do it, so why not use it for good and, and helping people out? And so it's it's weird because it's it's... It's a very simplistic movie that <laughs> it was incredibly complicated to make. Right. Um, so I, I just I think it's neat because it's uh, it weather. You know, I think it weathers very well. I think it really holds up well. And I, I think one of the things that that made it both amazing at the time and keeps it amazing even today is uh, that it's more than the sum of its parts. It's it's more than just a comic book movie. It. it it's more than just a superhero origin story. It's more than just a simple adventure story. It's it's all these things combined. But I think where Superman the movie has the advantage over everything that came before it, cinema, you know, comic book cinematically, and everything that's come after it. Even though we've had some absolutely incredible comic book movies that have come along, especially in recent times, I think the thing that keeps this one the top of the heap is that there's a certain spectacle to it. That off the top of my head, I really can't think of any other comic book character, hero, team, property, anything like that, that that quite has the same depth, has the same scope that, that Superman does. And this movie managed to to not only be a really good and fun family friendly, you know, comic book adventure movie, but it it transcended to great cinema. I mean, I know people that could care less about comic books that consider Superman the movie one of the best movies of the 1970s. And and I think so too, but of course I'm prejudiced because I'm a Superman fan, but 
but it is great cinema. It, it stands right up there with you know you you name you know the the great movies of, of the of the late seventies early eighties. It stands toe to toe with with Jaws and Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Close Encounters and all those movies that are the tentpole movies of that era and of of a certain generation. Superman's right there with those movies. And uh, and I think that says a lot for it. And it, and it even stands with non-genre movies like, you know, The Godfather. I, I think it's, you know, I think Star Wars stands toe-to-toe with, or excuse me, I keep saying Star Wars, Superman rather, stands toe-to-toe with, you know, those movies as well. You know, the the, the great, again, you know, cinematic movies uh, of that time. So that's, that's the thing I really like about it is, is it's so much more than just, you know, these days we're, we're very spoiled. We get a comic book movie, you know, every couple of months. But back then, you know, Superman was that that was it. That was the big one. And for it to be more than just a comic book movie, but to actually be great cinema um, uh, speaks volumes for the movie. And I, I think it speaks volumes for the way the movie was put together, too. Right. One of the things that to me that stands out about the movie is that, I mean, I call I call it the first superhero movie. To me, Batman 66 doesn't count. But right. Because, because all, all, all that really is was 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 an extension of the existing TV show. But. But this was the first time they they took it seriously. I mean, not in a you know humorless sort of way. The movie had a lot of humor and charm, but they they they, they took it seriously as far as uh, as far as the craft of making the movie. They made they tried to make um they tried to make a movie with Superman in it instead of you know just going all uh, comic comical. You know, obviously there are things we see in the comics they couldn't do, and anything they could do, they had to do. They had to invent, so they had to create a lot of technology oh, yeah. to make this work and. You know, I, having talked the first three parts over the first three episodes, the movie is so well cast. There's there's things in this movie that I think should not work, but absolutely they do because because of the way Christopher Reeve and Margot Margot Kidder are in this movie. Like like you put him on, on the helicopter scene, put saying that line about how flying is the safest way to travel after he catches her out of a falling chopper. You know, that shouldn't work, and it didn't work when Brandon Routh had to do it. But right. there's something about Christopher Reeve that he's saying these cornball lines, but you buy it. Well, you know, the the scene that I always point to for, for illustrating that exact point is the scene where he explains himself to Lois. She right. says, why are you? And he says, I'm here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. Now, you take just about anybody else wearing that costume and looking the way they do, you know, looking like Superman, and, and it could be a farce. It could right. be utterly and completely laughable and ridiculous. And Chris Reeve sells that moment. There, there's two moments of the movie that, that I will always point to and go, that's your cell right there is that moment. And also the moment where he lands on her balcony and he lands on her balcony and just says, good evening, Miss Lane. There's something about the delivery in that moment that you just go, Oh my God, it's Superman. It's that's right off the comic book page. And I just wanted to go back to something that you had said, because it was something I was thinking about very recently. You know, when you think about it and I, I haven't heard this point talked about a lot is the fact that, this movie bucked a lot of trends to to become the movie it became. You know, you talked about Batman 66. That was the trend. You know, so for this movie to come out and and have Richard Donner's mantra of verisimilitude and, and 
trying to take itself seriously but not too seriously that was ballsy because everything else comic book you know when 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 comics went to other media was corny and cheesy and especially when it was live action you had things like Batman 66 you had Legends of the Super Friends you had that god awful Superman musical that had been televised just a maybe three years before yeah, three years. Just, that was 75 yeah, yeah. So when you look at that stuff for this movie to to tackle this subject matter and, and try to really take it seriously and make it, you know, air quotes believable, that that was quite the gamble for a movie that was already quite the gamble because I think people forget this was the most expensive film ever made at the time. So it was a huge risk to not just go for the easy laugh and and make it you know, ridiculous like Batman 66 was, but uh, there was something about it that Donner said, no, that we don't want that. I mean, it, it clearly has some great humor in it, but it's not farcical. It's, it's not poking fun at Superman. It's, it's treating the character with the, you know, the respect that, you know, uh, the, uh, 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 an iconic piece of Americana such as Superman deserves. And, and, and again, I think that's to its strengths. All right. All right, Gene. So you have to follow that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. You could make a whole episode out of that. <laughs> so, what do, you, what do you remember about seeing this for the first time? Uh, much like you, I don't. Um, this is one of those movies that, in my memory, has always been there, and that's because when it premiered, I was just barely three years old, and my sister wasn't even three months old yet. So I know for a fact we didn't go and see this in the theater. What I do remember about it, though, is this and Superman 2 were on a VHS tape that two of four movies on said VHS tape that my dad had taped off of HBO. And that was one of the things that we did early on when we had HBO is we would get that little book telling you when the movies were on and he would set it up and the, the, the tape had numbers of the movie. So it'd say Superman and the length the movie was, and then the counter position on it. So zero to 310 or whatever it was. And so, you know, Oh, well, if I want to see Superman two, I have to go to 311 on the counter on the VCR. So I, it, this is just one of those that, it's always been a part of my life. I'm most likely the first time I saw it was a TV broadcast, like on uh, WPIX or something. Right. But I don't remember that. It's just, okay, I, I want to watch cartoon Superman. Well, that's a super friends. I got to wait for them to come on. Or I want to watch live action Superman. Let me get the tape out of off the shelf and put that in. And, or uh, and I believe it or not, I didn't actually have any comic books of Superman for the longest time. My my first Superman comic was the Action Comics Annual during Exile, where you have Gladiator Superman on the cover. So that was eighty nine, I think. Yeah, eighty eight, eighty nine. That yeah. was that was that was yeah. your first comic for the longest time. That was the only Exile comic I didn't have. It really, took, it took me years to track that down. <laughs> well, I still have my copy, <laughs> but it, like Scott said, this, this is one of those movies and I can't say it's my favorite movie. I can't even say it's my favorite superhero movie because 
and I'm going to get yelled at for this. Or to quote Miss Testmacher, I know I'm going to get wrapped in the mouth for this, but <laughs> I don't like the flying scene. I don't like the can you read my mind? And Kira, because we watched this today. And can you imagine if she sang like she was supposed <laughs> to? <laughs> Well, it, it wasn't so much that, as, especially today, is when when Superman is holding Lois out by the tips of her fingers and all this, I said, you know, I I just said, boy, is that dumb? And she looked at me and said, yeah, what if she falls right before she fell? <laughs> but this, this is the kid that had the, the, the golden quotes of the day with, with watching the movie. I think this is the first time she's actually sat and watched the whole thing. Because usually I'll have it on and she'll watch it and then she'll go do something and yeah. come back. And, you know. But being 10 now, she has the attention span where she can watch the two and a half hour extended cut and two of the making of documentaries directly after and not get bored, not walk away without saying, Daddy, pause it, which I consider a, a success. Yeah, I mean, it takes me uh, two nights to... Yeah, Haley threw a movie, at least. <laughs> You'll get there. You got three years ago. <laughs> but it's it's still, like Scott said, it's got that message. And it's because of Christopher Reeve. The, on, the only actor that I've seen play a superhero that makes me believe him as much is Chris Evans as Captain America. Because of the exact same thing. He is not posing. He is not being over the top. He's underplaying it. And just, uh, yeah, this is who I am. And you buy it instantly. And that's the difference. That It's not dark. It's not a farce. It is what it is. It is life. Because life has tense moments. Life has light moments. Right. It, it's it, all the different soap opera aspects. The, the love triangle between Clark Lois and Superman is there. Margot Kidder sells that perfectly. And... Everything. I mean, down down to Perry White, former child star, <laughs> Jackie <laughs> Cooper, who my dad had to point out to me when I was young. I don't remember at, at what point this was, but he he pointed out to me, you know, he was in Little Rascals, and it it never clicked because we would watch Little Rascals when the on early in the morning on the weekends. But he's got a humor to him by the nature of it, but he's also serious. He's also, okay, I'm giving Clark the city beat because this, right. this, and this. Clark, listen, you're a great guy. You're a wonderful reporter, but you can be better if you do this. And his his delivery is great, but he's caring about his people. He's not throwing him on the, the sports beat just to have another reporter there. But, Which doesn't happen in a real newsroom. I know it doesn't. Well, <laughs> The newspaper stuff in in these movies usually bothers me the most. This is one of the few movies where I actually don't even the, all these movies. I have no complaints about how they handle any of the newsroom stuff. Having worked in newsrooms, mm -hmm. Lo Lois and Clark, I scream about it all the time. <laughs> like, no, that's not how it works. I even yeah. screamed at the Fleischer cartoons too, <laughs> <laughs> for for the same reason. That, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, Two but this reporters don't compete for the same story. Rant over. <laughs> And, and that's why Lois is so upset. Hey, no, you'll give him my beat because that would mean they would either be competing or she gets put on something else. And it makes sense. It The the whole office thing, the, the way it's set up, the interactions, it, it just makes sense, especially the stuff in the background. 
Now, I've never worked in a newsroom. I've never visited a newsroom. But I can see, okay, these copy boys are running back and forth because they've got to get these stories to the typesetter or to the editor or back to the reporter for changes or whatever. They never say it. It's just there. And it makes sense. It's the Daily Planet consists of more than four people. It's amazing. You well, never had a see more budget than the George Reese show did. Yeah, and luckily none of those people was Steve Lombard. Luckily, <laughs> but yeah, it's so. The long answer to your short question is: This has always been a part of my life, and it's always been part of what I consider a superhero story, a finite superhero story to be. Right, and. It, it, Everything else is measured against this. That's that's how I am now. I mean, there was a time when this was not my favorite Superman movie. I, that, too, was when I was a kid because a little more action, got the mm. Superman quicker. You know, I didn't appreciate the uh, the origin story, the way it was told, you know, growing up when I was, you know, five, six, ten. I just wanted to get the Superman and get to the helicopter. You you wanted all the action beats and none of the other stuff. Well, what, what kid doesn't? True. I mean, I, I, I agree. I watched it all, mm-hmm. you know, but I would always kind of just sit there and, you know, kind of bored and uh, until until the action really started. You know, you know I st- you know, obviously I started appreciate, appreciating it later as I got older and especially as I heard about, started to hear about what uh, what a mess making Superman 2 was. <laughs> oh, yeah. With the uh, with the fire under Richard Donner. But for me, too, this movie was always there. It is alleged, and I say that because I don't remember it. I was only two years old at the time that I saw Superman 3 in the theater. But I would have been two, and my parents were either crazy or I was some kind of angel child <laughs> to, to sit through to sit through a movie, you know, that long at two years old. But the first... Especially since there are some very scary sequences for a two-year-old in there. Yeah. We had it on... Believe it or not, my, fa- my father must have bought this somehow on home video. We had that red clamshell case. That plastic uh, clamshell. I think it was the '81 release. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Yeah, but finally somebody knows it. <laughs> but worked that, a lot of video, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet if I went to my parents' house right now and uh, looked in their living room, it would, it's still there. And that that was the copy I uh, probably wore out until at some point my father uh, must have bought a second copy of it and gave it to me. But uh, yeah, we had we had the clamshell case for the first two films. The red clamshell. We taped the three off HBO, but eventually we bought the we got the clamshell for that. And it always bothered me that the because this is where my brain goes. It always bothered me that the the Superman three clamshell was blue and the others were red. <laughs> it shouldn't. Those things shouldn't bother me, but it did. Well, one of the one of the red ones should have been yellow. Then it would work. Right. Well, my my guess is one and two were released at the same time. So most likely, probably, yeah. probably why they were both red. That must be how Warner was was releasing their movies at the time because. Excalibur came in a similar case in green. Mm. So, again, th- this movie was always, always there. And I always knew about about the TV cut, but I never saw it until probably as I, was, I was a teenager. I, but I knew about the one for uh, for the second one because I knew about I knew about the Concord. And I always had this memory of non-breaking Jimmy's camera, which I found was on the TV cut during the attack on Metropolis. Right. So, I don't remember not being a Superman fan. And it's... Gotta be from these movies and and the Super Friends. I didn't start watching older stuff until later. So for a long time, this is what the def- these movies are what defined Superman for me. This one, at least the first three. Yeah, and the, the hell of an entry point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, you're definitely getting in on the high point here. Yeah. I didn't really start reading the comics until until 92, until the death, and then I kind of had to backtrack through... Uh, I backtracked at least until when Byrne took over, and then there was about an eight-year run that I... Probably from about 92 to 2000, when I when I collect the comics regularly. That was kind of my sweet spot. Mm. But it all started with, with this movie. And, and to make your point about... Uh, but Perry White, he was always my favorite Perry White. You know, serious, not over the top like John Hamilton was. Right. Especially as that show got aged, John Hamilton almost became a cartoon character, his Perry White. But, you know, he was serious. You know, he was he was tough. He was the boss. But you got a sense that, that, he, that he cared about his employees. Even if he did try to give Clark with a pep talk with his back to him while staring out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and don't call me sugar. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the look on his face when he realized he uh, yeah. <laughs> I always wondered if uh, if Jack if Jackie botched that line or if that was scripted like that. If it was scripted, it was it was such a wonderful delivery that you do have to question it. Because even if you look at uh, Jackie Cooper right after that, he kind of shakes his head, wondering what the hell he just said. And Jimmy looked kind of, looked kind of confused too. But yeah, I mean. Let, let, <laughs> Right, Chief. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then just walks away. So now we have three different versions of this movie that are out there. Do either of you guys have a go-to version now? Oh, definitely. My, mine has always been the – it's pretty much the one that just got released on Blu-ray, but I will always refer to it as the KCOP version. Right. KCOP being the the call letters of the station that – that played it on the West Coast. That that was the most famous bootlegged version of it. And it was, arguably, it was the most complete cut of the movie that existed up until recent years where, where fandom really started to come together and, and uh, basically uh, piecemeal different cuts of the movie together to where we got basically everything that was ever filmed put together linearly in, in the film and that's essentially where the I'm trying to remember what the new Blu-ray is called the one that just came out but it, it's essentially it's the, it's the most complete version of the movie um, that one has always been my my go-to it is called the extended cut I have the Blu-ray right here on my desk right yeah, yeah. it's called it's, Superman the movie extended cut yeah it's, it's great I love it because uh, a lot of my favorite scenes are scenes that actually were not in the theatrical cut of the movie. Right. Yeah, mine is not that version. Uh, I have that version. I've watched that version, and I'm sorry, Scott, but it's just it's too damn long for me. Uh, and it has just... <laughs> a lot of unnecessary stuff. <laughs> yeah, like the uh, the Kryptonian policeman going down to arrest Jor-El. I don't need to see that. <laughs> my... <laughs> My preferred version is the previous extended cut that came out uh, a few years ago. Which, ironically, still had the Kryptonian policeman going to arrest Jor-El. Well, no, it didn't. It didn't? It does, doesn't it? No, it has the Kryptonian policeman talking to the council. Then he disappears. You never see him again. Yeah, I I think it eliminates the scene where he dies. Yeah. So, but this this is the two-and-a-half-hour version, which has, like, that, that... portion in it's got the machine guns fire and freezing going to luthor's lair which we're going to talk about later and and correct me if i'm wrong though i don't think that version has the extended extended missile chase sequence which is why i was ultimately disappointed with that version oh correct you you mean you mean where uh 
where he gets in front of the missile. Yeah, and yeah. You're correct. It has the the missile chase sequence is exactly as in the theatrical cut. Yeah. yeah no, I see need that to, always. I, I need for, to have that moment because yeah, that that always bugged me for two reasons. Because for one, um, I love the scene where he gets in front of the missile. I, I think that is actually one of the best flying moments in, you know, Superman flying moments in the film. <laughs> it wound up on the, on the cutting room floor, but I, I love the kind of sideways swoop out of the sky that he does. And then I love his stance that he's, he's ready to, you know, he's bracing himself to try to catch this missile. I just, I love that moment. It's a short little scene, but it's, it's really good. But also the other thing that bugged me about it is that if you're familiar with the John Williams score, then the cut is incredibly obvious because the the music has a a very obvious jump in the edited, you know, in the theatrically released version and in the in the version that you're talking about because they just omitted a scene and it's clear that they omitted a scene because the music jogs, you know, it, so it's it, it really stands out to me. Maybe it wouldn't to other people that aren't so you know, musically inclined or aren't quite as familiar with the score. But to me, it was just so obvious every time I'm like, ah, they just eliminated that scene. Yeah, that I I have problems with the elimination of that scene for none of those reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Mine, mine was always geography. He's coming from the East. Right. Because I grew grew up in New York City. I knew the missiles were, so I knew where New York City was. I knew where California was. How the hell did he get that missile get in front of him? You know, I'm sure a lot of people weren't thinking about that, but I was. Right. Yeah, that that is one one scene I would like to see in my preferred version. The only other one from the true extended cut is a very short transition, and that's Lois and Clark, after the attempted mugging, get into a cab, drive away, and then you see Otis walk on. Right, yeah. yeah. Because that centers it as... This is all happening around the same area. And it's just, it's beautifully done, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if that was in there, then, uh, you know, those two things in the version I'm talking about, that would be ideal. But there's just too much in the newest extended cut for me to to go to that. It's just, okay, I don't need to see the entire tracking shot coming in. It's you cool, but you don't that. need to see it. Right. It's it's great to watch as a curiosity. It's not what I would put on like this afternoon. I needed to watch the movie to get ready for, for this. That's not the one I chose. I chose the other one. But not the theatrical cut because that just has a little too much chopped out. Like Superman goes, again, we'll talk about this. Superman goes down in into the subway and then he's at Luthor's lair. Right. It makes more sense with the defenses in there. Plus, it's just a hell of a special effects sequence. And and it's more action for a movie that I've often heard argued could use more. Because, like you said it yourself, you know, you like Superman 2 better. And there was a time when I was a kid that I actually liked Superman 2 a little bit better for much the same reasons. It has more action. It gets to Superman faster. It gives you more Superman. And it gives you Superman actually doing stuff. Right. And so I never understood why they cut that scenes. And it's funny, if you listen to the commentary that's on the version that Gene's talking about while he and I forget who he and who Donner does the commentary with Mangowitch. is yeah. it is it okay. Mangowitch. yeah he says why the hell did we cut this he actually says that during the thing and, the, and neither one of them really have an answer for why they cut he it he also asked Donner why did you waste all this time shooting this <laughs> which, which kind of rankled right. me a little bit right I could see if it doesn't work because I'll agree with Gene I mean I'm not 
I'm not so in love with the movie or with the the cut that's my favorite that I can go, oh, I love every single scene. No, I mean, some of that Otis stuff of him yeah. just walking drags. Yes, right. it does. But, and there's a little too much, uh, when they're setting up the myth, a little too much shen- extra shenanigans. Right, right. Right, and I, and I agree with that, and I can understand why those scenes were cut. I enjoy watching them now because it just you know it gives me more of my favorite movie. But I I perfectly understand why they were cut. I will never understand why the the walk through the booby trap tunnel sequence was cut. And it, I think it's ironic that Donner himself now no longer remembers why the hell they cut it out. Right. The only thing I can think is post production because you need to have. Right. The bullets, the Time. animated bullets bouncing off of him, and he needed to have the animated fire around him. Yeah, but they were done enough to put on TV. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. it was all done because they had televised it, you know, just a short while later, so it was done. It's it's not like they had to go back and, and do it in some sort of special cut or something like, you know, like the Donner Superman 2 cut or right. something like that. Those were all completed effects. But were they completed in time? Is is the main thing because they already missed I su- the summer release, you know. That's now that's entirely possible. Right. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that is entirely possible. But I, I still couldn't see them going back and finishing them for the TV cut. That just stuff didn't didn't happen then, right? Unless they needed it specifically to make it a two night event. The salt kind uh, of, the salt kind of spend any money they didn't need to. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Mike because, I mean, you know, granted, it's a different movie house, but you look at like Star Trek, the motion picture, for for example, for Christ's sake, the uh, Star, Star Trek, the motion picture that they televised has a scene in it that's not complete. Mm-hmm. It's Kirk coming out of a scaffolding. You know the scene I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, Mike's right. They didn't do stuff like that back then. <laughs> One scene I wish they even put into the director's cut, it's right after the helicopter sequence, where you see kind of the people on the ground kind of yelling at how they don't believe what they just saw, and you see him fly over. Right. I wish they kept that, because you see on Reeves' face a little smile as he flies over that, as he's listening yep. to their reaction. So I, yeah. I thought that was a cool little beat, too. Yeah, not not all of the stuff that that's added back in for the extended. Now, granted, there there's a lot of stuff that's like, okay, this is a little slow, it's a little boring. I know why they cut it, but there's also for for every extra Otis scene or every extra Luthor gag or whatever, there are a li- a lot of little scenes. Like some of them are only like a couple of seconds long that didn't make the theatrical cut, but that do add something. And there's a lot of shots of of Reeve in flight and little looks that he gives, and I, I love that stuff. That's why you know I will wade through you know the, the extra seeming hours of Otis to get those little moments because right. I, yeah. I like that stuff. It, it it does add something to the movie to me. I really enjoy that stuff. Now, now the version that you did you you know, what you call the KCOP version when you were younger did that have the him going back to the fortress after the first night in it? Yes, yeah, it did because it was there. I'm trying to remember now. I, I should have done my homework on this. I'm trying to remember now what it was that made the KCOP version so damn special because there was the two night televised version that had extra stuff in it, but the KCOP version had even more stuff than that did. Right. So basically, if you got copies of both of those, 
you had pretty much everything that existed. And then there was also, but I may be confusing this with Superman 2, but there were also international versions that had different footage as well. But right. again, that I might be thinking of Superman 2 with that. But I remember the, the two-night version, and I had a bootleg somewhere of that that I contented myself with for a long time. And then when I was working in video in, uh, in Rochester, New York, I ended up making friends with a guy that had, somehow he'd gotten his hands on a bootleg of the KCOP and burn me a copy of it. And, uh, and that's where I really fell in love with that version because there were, there were extra scenes that you got in that, that, that weren't in the extra scenes that were in the two night televised version. There was, so essentially it was even more bonus stuff. Right. And that's where I really fell in love with that one. And I'm trying to remember specifically what those scenes were. And I think that might be one. Right. Cause the tape I had of the three hour version that my friend Tom had given me in high school, he, I think he had taped it over off of WPIX in on channel 11 down for, out of New York. I think Gene is familiar. I don't know if you're familiar with that station, yeah. Scott, but, uh, it had, yeah. yep. it had everything except it didn't have the scene with him returning to the fortress, which, so the first time I saw that was when they released the, Edition in 2000. And for some inexplicable reason, it cut out the Indian chief. Really? Yeah. To, to the point, yeah, to the, yeah, I think you're right. To the yeah. point where I actually took his version, you know, because I, dub- I dubbed a copy for myself. I, st- I paused his version, went and got my version, stuck the Indian chief back in, and then, and then dubbed, <laughs> and then dubbed the rest of his version. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the and other, scene- like 12 years old. The other scene that stands out to my mind, and again, I could be dead wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. The other scene is, uh, because I remember specifically the first time I ever saw this scene going, oh my gosh, I'm seeing a scene I've never seen before, is late in the movie after Otis has screwed up the first missile and Luther's attacked him in the van and everything. There's a scene where the van is parked in the woods and... Otis and, and Ms. Teschmacher are in the van and Luthor is like sitting on the back bumper or something kind of musing like, what the hell am I going to do? And they're, they're carrying on a conversation inside. And at one point he just like pounds his fist on the door and says like, shut up in there. Something to that effect. You, you know the scene I'm talking yeah, I, about? I do. Yes. And I'm pretty sure that was exclusive to the KCOP one as well, if I'm not mistaken. Because I, I specifically remember the first time I saw that going, oh my gosh, I've, n- I've never seen this before. That, so. I think that would have been right after uh, the fist fight in the van. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which yeah, I just it, noticed for the first time last night that when when Luthor was giving his geography lesson to Superman, Otis still has the black eye. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed that for the first time. All right, so... We're starting, to, we're starting to kind of overlap with the next segment, so why don't we take a quick break, I'll play some promos, then we'll come back and cover the, the end of Superman the movie. Hang around, folks. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Some like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice! Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar! Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Quasar. 
Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? All right, welcome back, folks. Uh, in this segment, we're going to cover the last, uh, I guess, 45 or so minutes of the movie. I didn't exactly check the time. But if, if you watch the uh, theatrical cut, it's chapters 31 through the end. And on the director's and extended cut, it's chapters... 32 through the end, basically starting with the Indi- with Lois's interview with the Indian chief. I know in last episode when I when I had Andy, Andy Leyland on, we talked about the Indian chief, but apparently that starts uh, this chapter and not the uh, clock arriving at the planet. So the only thing, the only note I have on the Indian chief is why Lois is interviewing this guy in the car, especially when she can't pay attention. No, you just don't do that. You pull no. over or go to a diner or something. <laughs> you have your full attention. On the guy you're interviewing. Yes. That's it. it. It's never a good time when your interviewee has to remind you to stay on the road. <laughs> uh, although I, I I just love love the Custer line. It's it's perfect. It is. And uh, so from, from there we go. Uh, we talked a little bit about this scene. We go to, uh, and I'm going to assume you, you've all seen this movie, so I'm not going to give you a synopsis of the scene we're covering. <laughs> Superman meets Luthor. L- L- Luthor hits him with some crypt. Hits him with a kryptonite necklace. Miss Texmacher saves him. He starts an earthquake. Movie ends. They get arrested. <laughs> there's, there's, our, there's our brief synopsis. Because I, I didn't feel like making one up. Well, mm. I didn't feel like writing one. But not as much. <laughs> obviously, I left I left a lot of stuff out. But and, and we'll get to a lot of that. So just in general, what did you guys think of the Daily Planet set? I thought it was great. I mean, it, it looks it looks nice. It's expansive. You know, with all the glass walls and everything. And the the only thing I can think, and I know this is how buildings were built back in the 70s and earlier, but windows that open on a high rise, not a good idea. No. <laughs> and I will say this, these are some of the most unobservant reporters I have ever seen. Well, they're all glued to the television. Yes. Nice for newspaper reporters, huh? Right. <laughs> a man jumps in- out a window and nobody notices. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're all like the guy that uh, earlier in the film with the jewel thief. They just, nah. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't really happen. Yes, but, yes, but no, the windows should not be open. And, you know, I liked that Perry's uh, speech as the uh, as the message from Luthor came came along. I, I, like I made the snide comment about why he's giving a Clark a pep talk while he's looking out the window. But obviously that's, they need Perry to not notice Clark leaving. I've been in this news game 40 years, man and boy. And I got where I am with guts, compassion, elbow grease, and something you're sadly lacking in, son. Um, humility? No, not humility. You got bags of humility. Aggression, confidence. That's the ticket. Take charge. Let people know who you are. Why, I wasn't a boy 10 years old. I had my down there before I was 20. This is Lex Luthor. Only one thing alive with less than four legs can hear this frequency, Superman, and that's you. In approximately five minutes, a poison gas pellet containing propane lithium compound will be released through thousands of air ducts in the city, effectively annihilating half the population of Metropolis. I was a reporter before most of my friends were copy boys. That's what I want you to do, boy. Get Lois to introduce you to Superman. Find out who he is. What's he like? Where do you get that blue suit? I believe this was the first time we got this kind of thing on TV where somebody used Superman super hearing against him to, to send, a, send him a message. 
And yeah, I always thought that was mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. I thought that was very clever on uh, on Luthor's part. And for for just a moment in that part, you see that because up till that point, Luthor has been. I don't want to say ridiculous, but he's been very cartoony. He's he's not seemed well. For one thing, he's not seemed at all like comic book Luthor. Who comic book Luthor, at least to me as a kid and, and during this era, was he was a comic book villain. You know, he was evil and he was trying to you know destroy Superman and all that. But he was also an evil scientific genius. Now with this scene, you know, after the introduction of the character and what little we've seen of him up to this point where, where a lot of his scenes are used to comedic effect because Otis is present. Now, suddenly we're getting Luthor evil scientists because, you know, he's talking about his plan to, to annihilate half the people of Metropolis just to get Superman's attention. And so suddenly you're getting, you're getting that glimmer. And this is one of those things that, that took me a long time to, to really become aware of because I think, I think it's done very subtly, but Luthor slowly ramps in this movie. He goes from being kind of silly and ridiculous when we first meet him to at the point where he puts the kryptonite on Superman and then drops him in the, in the pool. We have gone from, you know, especially if you were familiar with comic book Luthor, we've, we've gone from something you might look at and go, what to, Oh my gosh, he's he's frighteningly scary because I love the scene where he's holding the kryptonite chain in his hand and he says he repeats Superman's words back to him. He says diseased maniac. There's something in his delivery where he's in that moment. He's legitimately scary. And I really like that. Right. So we, we get we get the reveal of evil science, you know, evil genius Luthor in dribs and drabs up until that point. And, and this is a nice connector, you know, between those two scenes, the, the using the, the ultrasonic frequencies against Superman. I thought that was really cool. I've always liked that. Gene, got anything? Uh, no, I think Scott covered all of that. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, it just to, to reinforce that point, you throughout the movie up to, up to now, you see, little bits of what Luthor's got going on. Uh, right, you see the, right. him taking over the missiles. You see him, you know, doing these, these different things. And this is what connects it. This is when, when he's explaining to Superman how he's going to use a 500 megaton nuclear warhead just to create a real estate boom for him. Right. That's when you get the the depravity of of his mental process. It it's when that is when I was a why when, when I was a kid, I remember at one point when when he smashes that overlay, you know, and the the uh, ground zero right here, whack. Right. It was just like he's really going to do this, isn't he? Right. <laughs> because you know, like yeah, you know, this, this is a guy who's Pals around with Otis. He can't be that much of a threat, right? All right and oh, meanwhile, no. Luther's delivering all this scary stuff, and Superman's got this look on his face like, what a bunch of schmucks. <laughs> <laughs> because he's he's thinking that Luther's just going on like, yeah, I'll, I'm going to get to this eventually. Right. Not that it, this isn't the, um, the end of Watchmen, you know, almost a decade before Watchmen's written, <laughs> of, oh, no, I, I already did, did this. It's already started. Right. Right. 
That's one of my favorite lines in the movie is when when you know he asks Superman, you know, he asks for Superman's opinion. So what do you think? And he says, uh, you know, it's it, it, I'm trying to remember the exact line, but he says, uh, What do you think, Soup Baby? Interesting. Well, your theory is quite impressive, Luthor. Otis, uh, would you go to the viewing room, please? But as for the rest, it's nothing but a sick fantasy. <laughs> fantasy? No, no. It's history. It's happening, Superman. I love that. It's a very quick delivery, and it's a very simple line, but Luthor is both revealing and dismissive in, in the way he delivers that line. It's, it's history. It's, it's actually unfolding right now. While I've been telling you, while I've been monologuing, this is already in play. You're too late. I love, I love it. Yeah, he does. He absolutely does. And I, I've always enjoyed the fact that he's using Superman's inherent goodness and, and I dare I say, na- naivete against him. And that's one of the things that I think really makes L- Luthor, again, a, a legitimate threat, but a scary threat in this is that he knows enough. He's figured enough out about Superman in the little bit of time Superman's been around and that he's interacted with him to realize I, I can completely manipulate this person. And he does masterfully manipulate Superman because Superman is for all his strength and all his goodness and everything else. He's he is rather naive in these scenes. And I I genuinely like that. I think that's I, I think the dynamic between Reeve and and Hackman in these roles in this particular film is is fantastic. And we won't really see this again, you know, until the end of the of the series. I don't think that they ever got this level back again until a couple of their their back and forths in Superman four, ironically, no, in all places. No, the, I, I, of, I, I agree with that. Uh, mm. The moment where uh, he calls the Superman to his uh, penthouse to introduce him to the Nuclear Man. That's the yep. closest we get to this. Yep. And we get a tiny bit maybe at the end when Luthor's trying to save himself at the end of at the fortress at the end of Superman two, but Superman quickly shuts him down. Yeah, because at that point, I, no, go I, ahead. I was just going to say at that point, Superman's reversed it. Superman is playing Lex. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It's it's that it's a role reversal and also for sadly I've I over the years I don't remember how I felt about it as a kid but over the years and and today I, I've come to feel like Luthor regresses in Superman two rather poorly I, I think he goes back to being non threatening non scary kind of comic relief ridiculous Luthor in the second movie and that's kind of a shame I, I wish he'd gotten at least one genuine you know, scary moment like he does in, in Superman. Cause I actually think he has a couple of them, but uh, again, the, the scene that always has stuck with me is the, you know, the, the big kryptonite reveal and, and right. placing the kryptonite around Superman's mm. neck. You diseased maniac. Do you really think you could hide it from me by encasing it in lead? <laughs> I'll mold this box into your prison bars. Don't touch that. I told you. It's kryptonite, Superman. Little souvenir for the old hometown. I spared no expense to make you feel right at home. You were great in your day, Superman. But it just stands to reason. When it came time to cash in your chips, this old diseased maniac would be your banker. 
Mind over muscle? You don't even care where the other missile's headed, do you? Certainly I do. I know exactly where it's headed. Hackensack, New Jersey. Oh. <laughs> I have to leave you now. No hard feelings. We all have our little faults. Mine's in California. That scene, I think he's genuinely frightening because you realize this guy's a homicidal maniac on, yeah. a, on a massive level. And I don't, to my quick recollection, I don't think we ever get a moment like that in Superman 2. And, that, and that's a shame because for a lot of that movie, he's he's used as, as kind of, you know, comic relief playing against the villains who are the big scary threat. Right. But, in, in that movie, it's, it's a lot of how is he going to make that situation benefit him. That's really all he's doing. Right. But no, he is... Uh, Lex Luthor at his scariest in this film, in this scene, and I really think uh, Reeve and Hackman play very well off each other. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Again, like, like I said before, this is one of those things that shouldn't work, but they these two guys make it work, and that's, that's a testament to their acting ability. Hackman was a great established actor already. Reeve was new, so for him to be able to go toe-to-toe with Hackman in this role that people can look at as farcical... It just, I think it's a testament to, to the work he put in and the job he was able to do. Oh yeah, I, th- I think it's also you know one of those things where you know you, you just have a, a wonderful culmination of everything coming together just right because the initial, of course, according to legend anyway, the initial choice, the the one that they truly wanted for the role was Telly Savalas. And, you know, with all apologies to any Kojak fans out there, I never liked Telly Savalas. And I think if Telly Savalas had played Lex Luthor, we'd have gotten a cartoon. I think we would have gotten the farce. uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, have you seen him in The Dirty Dozen? He he plays Homicidal Maniac in that very well. (laughs) But do you you think in this, unless he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't have been as menacing. As hacks. Right, right. I yeah. agree. It, he probably would have been closer to, like, the, um, I want to say probably closer to the Luthor of the early 40s, where right. he's just, he's there, he's got this one thing, and he's threatening with it, but then Superman can take care of it pretty easily. But the Luthor of the 40s, that would build a $2 million robot to steal $10,000 from a bank. Right. <laughs> True. <laughs> but yeah, I like that G. Hackman brings the menacing. because, And I like, I don't know, maybe Telly Savalas could have done this too, but I like the smugness Hackman portrays with this role. because he, he knows he's the smartest man in the room. Right. Whether it's true or not, he knows he's the smartest man in the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, with his normal companions, it's always true. <laughs> and, and which is always something I always wonder about him. You know, if Lex Luthor, the self-proclaimed greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time. Why is he surrounding himself with these morons? Is it because he needs to be the smartest person in the room? It, it's pro- yeah, it probably is an ego thing. Oh, well, I mean, Miss Tessmacher is there for the obvious reasons, but... Otis is he needs he needs a gopher. He needs to not he can't go out in public because he will be arrested. Just look at the two detectives trying to nab him. Right. That's why Otis is there. And if if it was anyone smarter than Otis, they might try to undermine him and sell him to the cops 
to benefit themselves. Right. That that's that's the mental gymnastics I make to reason why Otis is there. I, I think Otis is there for the same reason that what's her name Harley Quinn is always there these days for the Joker. And you know, there's been a lot of analysis of of their relationship and everything. And you know, does the Joker truly care about her or whatever? No, he's a homicidal maniac. He doesn't care the least bit about her. He'll use her for his ends and he'll manipulate her. But in the end, she's going to die. And I think it's the same way with. Luthor and Otis is that he's using him and he'll, you know, he'll continue to, to have him around to, you know, to, to kind of puff himself up or whatever. But at the end of the day, he would gladly sacrifice Otis. And we kind of sort of see that in Superman two, when they escape from the prison, the minute that, that Otis, uh, is a hindrance to his plan, he cuts him loose. And I think he'd have done that whether Otis was still standing on the ground or if, if they were 10,000 feet in the air. I think he would yeah. have kicked the ladder loose and let him go because that's he's he's an evil bastard. And that's just where his mind goes, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd have done that to Miss Tessmacher, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you if you go by the the fully extended version, he almost did. He almost fed her to the alligators. <laughs> Well, there's uh, there's been speculation over the years. I'm trying to remember the full story on this because I was reading about this a while ago and I was really fascinated by it. And I, I can't remember the exact story, but it was something where it was speculated that she doesn't come back with him or she doesn't make it because we never see her again after the Fortress of Solitude scene in the second movie. So no, we, we actually don't. don't know what becomes of her. Right. And it was speculated that she never made it out of the Arctic. So, you know, there's that. So. There's that yeah. No, she just disappears after her usefulness has been uh, fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Right. One one thing I want to mention about the uh, the gauntlet scene, and this is not necessarily anything to do with what's happening to Superman. Obviously, one of the laments before I saw this scene was that we never did get the iconic shot of uh, bullets bouncing off Chris Reeves' version of Superman, so I'm glad we have that here. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they used the scenes in Luthor's viewing room to establish that Miss Tessmacher is developing a little bit of a crush on Superman. Yeah, because she is, as he's getting through all these, she's looking you know, more and more pleased as Luthor is getting more and more annoyed. Right. So, yeah, it, it makes sense. But you, she had a fascination with him from the first Lois Lane article. A fascination with his honesty. Yeah. Where, you, know, you see her go, it's like, oh, wow, this is a good guy. I can fall for this good guy. Right. Because he actually is. He actually is good. And I don't think in her life, I don't think she's ever been exposed to a, a true nice guy. Right. And even in the extended cut, she does that moment uh, when uh, Otis is feeding whatever the hell is down there. She actually does question. I don't know if she's just musing why she, quote unquote, loves Lex so much. He just says he's never boring, which I don't know if she buys that. But mm. either way, she's stuck. I think she's attracted to power. Yeah. You know, she's 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 a she's a mall, yes, but I think there's also the power thing, you know, the power aspect to it as well. Yeah, that works. Yeah, it makes sense. Whether or not she wants to admit that. Mm. It also took me a while to uh, find the boob joke in, in the uh, <laughs> in the map. <laughs> you mean Miss Tessmacher's place? <laughs> Tessmacher beaks. Yes, I I did not see that until at at most five years ago right no matter how many times i've i've watched the movie and i'm I'm gonna blame most of it on the fact that like i said we taped it off of hbo so it was pan and scan right. so you only see the well, important it, 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 defi- it definitely didn't make the pan and scan version yeah 
What, what is it that you're talking about? On the on the map when he's got when Luthor's got the towns, you know, Casa del Ex, Lutherville. On the Otisburg. top, yeah, Otis, on the top left, there's a, t- a, villa, a town called Tessmacher Peaks. It's it shows two mountains. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever noticed that. But oh my gosh, I have, now I got to watch that again. Oh yeah, yeah. I've ever noticed that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it's blindingly obvious once you know about it. So is that that it'll be like the new Grand Tetons? Is that is that exactly? Yes, that's funny. Yeah, no, that's I, very. Funny. I don't think I've ever noticed that. I didn't notice it until uh, Superman movie minute. I heard Rob Kelly and Chris Franklin mention it. Yeah, I I remember when they mentioned it. I had seen it before, but not much before. Right. And they also alerted me that I've been mishearing a one line for years, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay. All right, so, yeah, we, we, we covered her go, him throwing a... So, one of the missiles is going to New Jersey. I, I like how he learns that there's a second missile. I wonder how much of that Luthor actually scripted. Because he doesn't mention the second missile. Miss Tessmacher does. Miss Tessmacher! Yes, Lex? Where's the rocket now? It's going like a bat over the Grand Canyon. Stop the other one. The other one? There's two of them? Yes, Superman, double jeopardy. Even you, with your great speed, couldn't stop both of them. While I, on the other hand, could stop them with my detonator. All right, Luther. Where is it? Where's a detonator? Right. Yeah. So I wonder if he... if. He intended for her to reveal the the second one. Uh, I I would think so, just because that's yet another distraction. Right. Uh, he's I mean he's assuming that Superman will be incapacitated by the kryptonite. Right. But just in case, he he does seem like he would need a backup plan. Although my theory on the second missile is that it was a mistake in because. He's not remotely controlling these missiles. He's programming them to go a certain place. And the army bird is going east. The but the army bird was Otis's. Right, and that's, and that's the, one the Otis screw up. up. So I think it was originally that was supposed to be the one going to San Andreas. But because Otis screwed up, it just happens to be going the opposite way. Right. And that's why they had to go to the Navy one to get the correct trajectory right, because, you're right yeah but but, but, superman, but superman calls him on that and he says you don't even care where the other missiles headed do you and he, he goes yeah, certainly i do i know exactly where it's headed because he's plotted it out right because he knows oh well otis did this this and this so it must be going here wait but gee i'm gonna i'm gonna fight you on one thing okay i looked at the numbers on on the other missile yeah that they're different they're not the numbers that yeah i noticed yeah that, i've that always okay. told so that's, otis that's to put in yeah, that's always driven me nuts. So yeah, I, I, know, I think the Navy every, every time I watch the movie, I'm like, yeah. So I think if they paid enough attention to the numbers on, on the little display, and I hope they did, they uh, they they, they, was, they were always going to uh, intercept two missiles. Mm. I could be wrong. All right. I, yeah, it's just it, the the line readings of Luthor uh, with when they're going to the Navy one is he looks at Otis and says, "Get it right this time." Even though Otis isn't the one programming it, he's just, hey, you know, don't screw up again because I don't want to have to deal with this again. How, how, how can he screw up eating a chocolate bar? Well, <laughs> and no one, no one asks, hey, what happened to your eye? Right. <laughs> or, ha- or how Miss Tessmacher hung on that bridge in that dress. 
Well, certainly breezy. <laughs> At the point where he's falling into the pool, the missiles are already uh, on their way, and uh, Cliff Clavin is uh, one of the guys controlling him. Yep. And then he gets transferred over to NASA for the next movie. Yeah. Well, you, you know, in my head, Ken, and this is Cliff before mm. before he wound up on Cheers. You know, so this, he, that's why he's such a know-it-all because he's been all these places. Okay. <laughs> before, before he winds up as a lowly mailman at a bar. So, so he w- he was in the service before he when, when he mustered out. Then he took another government job as a mailman, and you know is going to get. Two pensions. Too much beer. He probably he probably got drummed out from getting drunk too much. Most likely. <laughs> spent a little time on Hoth too. Yeah, he yes. did spend a little time on Hoth. He was all over the place. Now I believe he's all. I don't know if he is so much anymore, but he. I know he was all over the early Pixar films. He's yep. in every single Pixar. Film. Oh, he is in every single one. Yeah. Yep. That I didn't. He, even he, even what was it? Uh, I. They they made a joke he, about he it. He was in Coca. That I don't know. I I haven't seen that one yet. But I think it's oh it's it's the end of it's like the after credit scene in Cars yeah where where Mac is in the theater and he's watching <laughs> all it's the, the same voice yeah <laughs> that yep. was funny so he gives the exposition uh, I guess this is the way to sub- to substitute the how the missile gets around Superman later yeah oh we. You know, the abort doesn't work, but we, we can't down them because they have the new avoidance system. Right. Right. And this is all leading up to learning that Miss Tessmacher's mother is in New Jer- is in Hackensack. Oh, you see, then not having watched the uh, the extended cut, Gene, Gene missed a line that I, I found hilarious. I thought of him when I said it. Because th- at first they, they speculated. So that, New so, Jersey? Yeah, what Gene, the what the hell Jersey? is in New Jersey, one? Gene? <laughs> ha ha ha! I always like that line. <laughs> yeah, be be from New York City, I would get a kick out of that line too. But here's the thing: it, Hackensack is not that far from New York City. No, it's not. It's uh, and if this probably, at the most fifteen miles, right? As as the Superman flies, if Metropolis is New York City, Twin Towers, it, it, and it is. I don't think being two hundred feet below Park Avenue is really going to save you from a five hundred megaton bomb fifteen miles away. No. So I think Luthor may, might want to be a little more nervous about it going to Hackensack. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> so again, she's banking on Superman's honesty to basically not uh, double cross her and uh, go after go after the one going to Lois and Jimmy. Yeah, and. Donner and Mankiewicz talked about this a little bit in their commentary, and they speculated that because there are more people in Hackensack and Metropolis area that he always would have gone for that one. The needs of the many. Yeah. Well, Although, I mean, if the, you add up Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of people there. I, I know. That's why that didn't ring uh, ring true to me. Yeah. All right. So she, she jumps in the water and uh, lays, she op- and opens herself up to a sexual harassment suit by uh, laying a kiss on an unconscious Superman. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't do herself any favors when she says she did it because he didn't think he'd let her later. Mm. Can you imagine if a male character did this to Supergirl? <laughs> the letters that would be written? Well, that's why Sleeping Beauty isn't going to wake up anymore. <laughs> but Kira had another wonderful line, at the, and this one I didn't post on Facebook. She takes the kryptonite off, throws it, and Kira looks at me and says, Daddy, I can see her bra. To which my response is, that's why you don't go swimming in a white dress. That is. Yep. That, that's good practical advice for later in life. Yes. Uh, yes. Th- this is a kid that, that notices stuff like that. 
like especially like we watch America's Got Talent. I was a kid that noticed stuff like that. Yeah. Well, but you had a different reason. Uh, <laughs> I also noticed why when she throws the cryptic down the drain, where's the water? Where does she throw this thing? Into well, the sewer. It's, it's it's she throws it up. So it, it goes up uh to the where Superman got pushed off initially, I think. She can't make that throw. Uh, apparently she can. <laughs> you don't know. Maybe she did the hammer throw in high school. She does not have the body type for the hammer throw. Mm, good point. The ha- <laughs> the throwers were not that dainty. <laughs> but it, I'm assuming that it's in lead pipes. Therefore, the radiation immediately gets cut off. Right. Well, it's the 70s. Everything was in lead at that point. So that's not that much of a stretch. True. So he. this was a favorite shot of mine, him flying off and yeah. kind of leaving oh, yeah. that arrow in the ceiling. As, and, as he flies and, off. And what's nice, and it, it works here because you never see her again after this. Not a, not said, a, no, only in the, do you see her again in the extended cut. He tells right. her not to stay there, and you presume right. that she left. Right. So in the theatrical and the director's cut, you assume, oh, yeah, she listened to him and ran. Right. And in the extended cut, she didn't get the chance to run because Luthor knew enough to come out and get her. Right. And yeah, why he couldn't just take her out, take her out with him, I don't know. He could have just left her and left her somewhere. Especially because after Superman picks her up later in the extended cut, that is, she wasn't accomplished. She should be going to jail too, unless she rolled over on him in court. Well, that wouldn't have happened yet. So I'm I'm thinking that maybe he took her into protective custody or something. Yeah. Uh, maybe she was already familiar with the fortress in by the time of Superman too. <laughs> <laughs> and from here, and you. Know, you know, it, I always wondered why it was night in Metropolis and daytime everywhere else, but I think I finally solved that problem for myself. He flies out, flies west into the sunset, so it's conceivable that it would still be right. daytime in the West Coast. Right, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if that was intentional on their part, but I'll give them credit for it anyway. And overall, we've talked about it a little bit before, the, the rocket chase looks looks great all around. You can see on Christopher Reeve's face the effort that it's taken for him to keep up with these things. Here's the thing. I, I've got a theory about this because this is a, this is the Silver Age Superman. So this is the Superman that can fly to another galaxy in an hour. I think he is pulling. He's trying to catch the missile, but he's not. He's not willing to rip up the atmosphere to do it. So I think he's mentally keeping the brakes on. Like he he's got a maximum possible speed in atmosphere, and then later when he's in space, that's when he can fly super fast. Right, that, that that's the kind of stuff John Byrne would tackle all the time when he took over the books. Right. How, right. how much of his how much of Superman's powers he could use without, you know, destroying the planet. Mm. I mean, he'd in those early this issues, is, he'd always say how he'd have to pull his punches to keep from killing somebody. This is one of those things that I've spent a ridiculous amount of time thinking about over the years as as the movie ages and and especially as the movie gets criticized um, often often by people that didn't necessarily grow up and and have the same level of fondness for it or even if they're you know just good naturedly trying to you know poke a little fun at it or what you know but there's there's scenes as you get closer to the end of the movie there there are a number of things that have come up over the years that that people want to try to either poke. F- poke fun at or poke holes in um superman's speed being one of them you know you have that uh that famous uh how it should have ended where luther is bragging about the two missiles and superman can't possibly catch them and then he comes back like two seconds later and he's holding both of the missiles in his hands it, you know and it's been questioned a lot if he's fast enough to to fly through the time barrier then why the hell can't, is he not fast enough to catch both the missiles the thing that i think people forget is that 
um, while I think to a certain degree I agree with Gene that this is the Silver Age Superman, at the same time, this is a nascent Superman. For mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, this is his first adventure. Right. Um, so we're getting a Superman that that has not fully uh, explored the range of his of all of his possible you know his capabilities. I mean, in the scene just before he and Lois go on their on their evening flight, she asks him point blank, "How fast can you fly?" You know, I've never bothered to time myself. Right. So even he doesn't know the full range of his of his powers and his capabilities. So it is very possible that until he flies fast enough to break the time barrier, he didn't even know he could do it. Because he does that in a fit of rage, right? True. So you know, there, it's like there's the emotion unlock unlocked of that ability. Exactly. Suddenly, he had the ability because he he thought of it. You know, he thought of of actually traveling so fast that he could go back in time. But up until that point, he may not have been aware that he could even do that. And and I think there's a lot of evidence for that if you look at later films where he gained further abilities because he never uses his heat vision in this movie, which would have been another great way to take out the missiles. Right. But he may not have discovered that power yet because we don't see him use his heat vision until near the beginning of Superman 2 when he fries the branch to try to save Lois in Niagara Falls. So... I, 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 like I said, it I takes four movies to develop, rebuild the Great Wall vision. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is, uh, I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with this, but it's funny you mention that because um, Paul Spataro was just here uh, visiting very recently, right. and we went on, uh, we went to Epcot, and he rode the new Soren for the first time while we were there, and we rode it together. And uh, there's a scene in there where you actually visit the Great Wall of China. And as we're flying over the Great Wall, I leaned over to Paul and said, you know what this scene really needs, though, is Superman using his Restore the Great Wall of China vision. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yes, he is. Either way, either way, the, the scene looks great. Other people have also said maybe he's still recovering from the kryptonite, too. That's something I never thought of. But, yeah, right, right. But that's a possibility as well. We don't know how long that affects him for. But e- either way, you can see the effort on his face. Especially as, as all that nuclear exhaust is... Uh, Pouring right into his eyes. <laughs> Invulnerable or not, that can't be pleasant. Mm. One thing that that always takes me aback watching those scenes, especially the scene where he's reaching out, he's grasping the missile, and he really has to struggle to reach that particular one where the exhaust, as you say, is right in his face. And then he finally catches up to it. He gives it the push. He shoves it in space. Next time you watch that, consciously think about the fact that all of this is happening on a static set. And then it'll it'll give you a new appreciation for those scenes because it feels like you were moving at an incredible rate of speed that this man is actually flying. So for the people that, as the film ages, want to criticize the the effects and criticize the flying and, and some of the blue screen and things like that, realize that for all the stuff that may not be aging 100%, there is so much of this movie that will be that will still hold up a hundred years from now, right. and it's because of those practical effects that feel so real. Um, that's a good one, and um, one of my absolute favorite shots of the entire film is after he has come back from from his trip through time, and he checks on Lois. Jimmy runs up, he interrupts the kiss, and Superman says, uh, "I'll see you later." There's something I have to do. When he flies, no, I'm. Is it that scene or? It's either that scene or it's the scene. I'm sorry, no, it's the scene where he drops Jimmy in the desert. I'm sorry, it's that scene. It's 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 a series of very fast cuts. He flies in, he drops Jimmy, 
he zooms back out and there's a great top down view of Superman as he flies away. All of that, again, on static sets, the thing that's moving is the film behind Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve is actually static, but it's the way it's cut, it's the way it's filmed, it's incredibly fluid, and it's completely believable. Mm -hmm. And there are movies featuring flying characters made years after this movie that are not a tenth as believable. I love The Rocketeer. It's one of my favorite movies, but the scene, the top-down shot of him flying for the first time has not held up. That was an amazing scene when that movie came out, but if you watch it today, it, it looks like what it is, cheap blue screen. But you see the same angle and the same thing in that scene with Superman, and it, damn if it doesn't hold up. And it's because of the way that they filmed it. It's not blue screen. It's practical effects. Right. They actually have a digital projection or, or whatever kind of projection. They, have yeah, a they projection did a lot of that in this film. Behind him. And it's that stuff that holds up. So rather than him being matted, which is why Superman 4 looks so terrible, so because all the flying stuff is badly matted, you have this rear projection system that, that really looks sharp. And it, plus it, it has a certain glow and a certain fuzz to it that strangely adds to the the effectiveness it, it because it gives you that illusion of of depth in a in a 2D medium if you know what i mean so like mm-hmm. when you you know you hold your hand in front of your face everything behind your hand is blurry because your your eyes are focused on your hand well that rear projection stuff whether they intended it to or not creates the same effect in a in a 2D medium. You're focused on Reeve, who's nice and crisp and clear, and then the rear projected stuff is slightly fuzzy because they had to blast it so brightly at the camera to, to capture it in detail that it gives it a, a certain haze and a certain glow that also causes it to be slightly out of focus, and it just adds to it. So that's why this stuff holds up so well. I, I, I definitely agree that it holds up more. You know, you know, one of the, and one of the things that drives me crazy with people who maybe watch it now and are used to the newer films don't take shot at a movie because it doesn't look like what today's do. These mm-hmm. are state of the art effects for its time. Oh yeah, and that's kind of all I got on that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's my point. You know, some of the effects do age better than others, but when when the movie was made, it's not the movie's fault. So I, I tried, and, and I tried to you know look at a lot of the lot of these movies, and it might. Perceptions of them, of them don't change as I get older. I still kind of look at this film kind of with my quote-unquote kid eyes. Right. So uh, those those things don't bother me because when I watch this movie, it takes it takes me back to, to when I was a kid. So I can definitely see how modern audiences may ha- may think it looks cheesy or whatnot, but t- to me, to me, it all still holds up in that. It, it de- I think it depends on when you're watching it and and kind of you know how old you are and and, and you know certain different factors. But I'll tell you one thing: you put this on for a kid, it has the same effect today as it had on kids in 1978. Oh, so the people that right. that that do watch it and maybe criticize it and make fun of it and go, "Oh God, this is cheesy" or whatever, they tend to be your older, you know, your 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 young people. You know what I mean? Like right. teens and early twenty. You know the the you know that crowd that's cynical about every damn thing, whether it's you know just came out last week or it came out 40 years ago so there you're you're battling that but you give this to what is arguably its intended audience which was kids to a certain degree they're still enthralled today the same way they were then um and and i know lots of kids that you know you you pop this on and they're they're glued so it, it does 
have a certain timelessness in that aspect, I think. You know, a, a lot of the stuff that I feel has dated with the movie are the things that date with any movie. They're the things that you can't control. You know, the, the hairstyles and the cars right. and, you know, the, the topical references of the day and technology, you know, that they're using and, and things. You know, you can't do anything about that. Right. But, but by and large, the effects of the film, the special effects, I think maintain pretty well um there's a few that are rough but for the most part the stuff where where they really got creative with the practical stuff holds up incredibly well and that's the main thing anytime you do uh, an effect like that in camera the rear projection for the flight the the miniatures anything like that in camera always is going to feel real Yep, There's because no it is. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because it is real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, in, in five years, the most state-of-the-art realistic CGI from today is going to be, oh, that's CGI. Right. Yep. You know, it's just, it's going to stand out. But if it's real in camera, it's got weight to it. it it's infinitely more believable that way. Right. And it, was, it, it will always hold up. That's why Star right. Wars, the non-special edition Star Wars, still looks great because yeah. it was all miniatures and practical effects. I, I think you have no further to look than say, like you know, the Phantom Menace. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not to get into a, a thing of prequel bashing because I'm not a prequel basher, but I, I think that's a perfect example. You look at the Phantom Menace, which is made 21 years later than this movie, and it's so much more dated. It, you know, you look at that movie and you're just like, wow, this CGI is really rough. Wow, this movie is really old. Then you sit and you watch Superman the movie and it doesn't feel near as old and it's 21 years older. Right, because half of that stuff in Phantom Menace isn't there. wasn't there when they read it. Yeah. Yep, exactly. No, there's definitely something to be said for getting every as much as you can in frame. Obviously, obviously there's stuff you can't, but you want to get as much as you can in frame. And one thing I think this movie does that, I don't know if you could do this now. I mean, Superman Returns failed to do this, and I think Superman Returns kind of proves the point. There's no supervillain as a physical threat to Superman. But with the emotional right. stakes ratcheted up, Superman versus nature works just as well. Oh, yeah. And this is a massive quake. I'm not sure if I realized it at the time, but I probably didn't realize how far apart Lois is from the Golden Gate Bridge. There are hundreds of miles right. between Southern California and San Francisco where the Golden Gate Bridge is. And I'm sure they were just using you know popular California landmarks. This is a statewide earthquake. So Superman is covering hundreds of miles and however many miles underground he went. To right. Literally raise the molten core. And this that could be one of my favorite sequences of the movie too, when in that all that orange when he just goes to the molten core and lifts the tectonic plate up. I oh, love yeah. that. I love that so much. There's something about that scene that to this very day it, 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 I guess it has to do with sort of the, the black and white uh, almost like film negative feel of it. That scene where he's lifting the plate back into place has always reminded me of the the George Reeves show because so much of that show was in black and white. Right. And I, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you why I don't I can't put my finger on it, but that particular shot has always reminded me of that to a point where I've I've often wondered if it was some sort of homage. But I, I just I love that scene. I know exactly the one you're talking about. I just thought that was always really really cool. Yeah. Though he, I mean, he flies on the, uh, underground and 
But I mean, you know, for all for all the praise, it's it's not perfect all the time because one that to this very day that has always bugged me. I love the sequence. I just don't think the effect is completely seamless and convincing is when he makes himself uh, the railroad track to save the train. No, that train should have jumped. Yeah. Well, I don't understand the effect that they use. So are we supposed to be believing that those wheels are actually? Actually running over his body over his back or or is it supposed to be going so fast that we just can't quite see it but it to me it looks it, it has always looked like they needed to lower the the wheels you know like another couple of inches or something to make it a little more believable because it looks like it's missing him by a country mile you know what i mean you, it, you watch it's, that it's scene kind of the it same doesn't thing. quite blend it's kind of the same thing when he's way back in the middle of the movie when young clark is running against the train yeah his feet are are a little off the ground, right? Yeah, and well, well, that that he's that actually suspended sense. in that sequence, though. Yeah, yeah. If his feet were touching the ground, he would have broken an ankle. Right. <laughs> but yeah, right. I, I I agree. There's you have to have a little bit of suspension of dif- disbelief there because, like Mike said, if if those wheels were hitting him, one of those cars would have jumped the track. Right. At the Especially speed, at the speed it was going. I felt like I, I felt like I won a battle recently because um, th- this was on in our break room at work a few weeks ago, and I'm watching it with a, a mixture of folks that are around my age, and then a whole bunch of, of young people that have grown up, you know, in the CGI movie world and you know post Jurassic Park and that sort of thing. And it was the scene you're talking about where he's racing the train home from school. And one of these young kids, it's you know probably in his early twenties at, at the oldest, says, "Oh my God, look how fake that that looks." And I don't typically do this, but I had to school him. So I schooled him and I told him, I said, that is not fake at all. And I explained exactly how the effect works, that it looks kind of funny the way it does, but it's actually a practical effect. He is there alongside that train actually racing it and and explained how the effect worked. And it was cool that he kind of came around to like, oh, all right, that's kind of cool. And but it uh, it that's not to say it doesn't look strange because it does. It looks really right. funky. But for anybody that's that's ever seen that scene and, and thought the same thing, that it looks like a poor effect, well, it, it's because of the way they did the effect. But that is a completely practical effect. Right. It's actually yeah. alongside that train, which is pretty <laughs> cool. Oh, that was the conversation killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I guess you could also headcanon that is that maybe, maybe he's flying a little bit, too. Could be. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think the director's cut shows a little bit, does a little bit of a better job of showing the scope as it kind of shows the uh, Hollywood sign kind of as an indication of Los Angeles and San Francisco to show the distance, at least maybe because I know the geography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They showed the geography earlier with the the overlay that Lex was showing. He's like, yeah, you know, you have Los Angeles down here, you have San Francisco up here. Look, it's going to affect this whole area. And then they physically show it with, like you said, in the director's cup with the Hollywood sign nearly falling on the Girl Scouts and right. all the way up to the Golden Gate Bridge with other kids in danger. <laughs> yes, and hey. I, there's a couple other things I noticed for the first time, too. This is the first time I noticed the boat in the bus window. Right as oh, really? Right as Superman flies into the boat that's traveling on, on the water. Right, yeah, because you're looking pretty much straight down at the bay at that point. Right. Right. I, I just like finding those little, those little details. That is one of my all-time favorite uh, scenes of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he puts, pushes the bus back in. It's alarming how little school buses have changed in 40 years. <laughs> well, they have seatbelts now, which, yeah, which helps. Right. That's, that's the one. Just, 
the one comment Kira had was, <laughs> well, why aren't they wearing their seatbelts? Well, they didn't have them. No, there right. aren't any. Exactly. I always got a kick out of the kid that looks like young James Brown that goes, hey, it's Superman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. <laughs> and now we're going to, I think the next thing that happens is he uh, catches up to Jimmy, mm. who, right. who, fall, who falls off the dam. And I have been mishearing this line for 37 years. He catches Jimmy and he says, apparently he says, hang on, Jim. I always thought he said, hang on, kid. Kid. I thought it was kid, too. Are you sure it's Jim? I listened to it like five times. Oh. Because the Superman the Movie Minute guy, I think Chris said it was Jim. And Rob thought it was kid. I thought I thought it was kid. Hmm. I'll be curious. I have to put the, the subtitle, although the subtitles often are not correct either. The subtitles yeah, did say Jim. It doesn't make sense to me that it would be Jim, though, because that seems like that's tipping his hand. Because up to this point, Superman and, and Jimmy haven't met. So okay. how would he know who he is? Yes, so if that's I true. If go, with, go with me a minute. Out of the sky by Superman, and he calls me by name, I'm going to be like, wait a minute, how, how does Superman know who I am? You know? Go with me a minute. I want, I want to finish. Okay. Because when he then when he drops him off, when he says, You're safe here, son. It always right. felt like he's putting a little bit more on his Superman voice. Almost as if he's right. realizing, I screwed up. I better try harder so he doesn't figure it okay. out. Okay. That makes sense. That makes a certain amount of sense, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I still think it's Kid, though. I, I wasn't paying attention close enough. I'll have, next time I watch it, I'll have to keep my ears open. I, I only paid attention because I heard them say it. Mm. <laughs> so I played it like four times, and I still hear both sometimes. <laughs> I wonder if there's a script online. Yeah, I, I've wondered about. I've wondered about that. You know, you, you know, it's it's funny. I was uh, for something. I was looking for a script of Superman two. So I was curious about how that movie was about the ending. As it was scripted, mm, right? Of, those pages were missing. Of course, of course. <laughs> I waited until there's a dire script, <laughs> and uh, all right. So anyway, there's that. I mean, not a lot to say about the action other than to gush about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you it's, know? it's all it. It's the super feats we saw at the beginning of the film just ratcheted up to eleven. Right. So we get to uh, Lois suffocating uh, in the ca- in the car. It really seemed like the earthquake kind of came for her. Yeah, with a crack coming up right behind her. <laughs> and then stops after it swallows her car. Yeah, and yeah that, that scene, not so much the, the scream, you know, uh, Superman's scream at, afterwards, but that scene of her getting buried and crushed, that always freaked me out as a kid. Oh, and, it's, yeah. and it's intercut with all of a, with Superman damming that river. Right. Yeah, and then, you know when he's looking all pleased with himself at the end, and then you, the superhearing picks her up, and it's like, oh crap! <laughs> yeah, that's what I always wonder: does he hear her, or does he realize he forgot about her? I think he hears her because then he, go, I mean, he goes right to where she is, right? And he wouldn't have known exactly where she was in all of this. So it, I'm, I'm guessing that he hears her gasping for air, right. and that's what. That's why his facial expression, he just, it just falls. It's like, oh, I forgot. Right. <laughs> or, oh, uh, you know, there she is. I need to get to her. I and... believe he mouths Lois before he takes off. He does. He does. And apparently, as I was listening to the commentary in the original script, he was going to make it. Uh, so so here's, here's the question, Scott. Lois dies here. What yes. was your reaction to seeing that in the theater? Um, as, You know, it's hard to remember now. I, I'm... I'm sure i was probably pretty stunned like wow you know he he failed he didn't right. he didn't save her but 
I don't know, probably, I mean, I was 10 at that time. I was right. probably much more of just, uh, uh, you know, I would watch it as it unfolded as opposed to now when I'm watching a movie, I'm thinking like, you know, 10 steps ahead, like, right. okay, you know, just to give you like an example, what I'm talking about, you know, an example when, um, when Thanos comes to earth and they're working so hard to destroy the, the mind stone and right. I'm just going, well, Thanos has the time stone. So everything you're doing is, mm. is pointless. Right. And of course that's what he ends up doing. So it's that, you know, it's that sort of a difference. So I don't, I don't remember other than I was probably like, wow, you know, wow, you know, yeah. where, where, what's going to happen now? You know, right. where's this going to go? Kind of thing. The scream still gives me the shiver. Oh yeah, yeah. With the look it. on his face, oh, it, oh, it, all the, of it. He's, when he's flying straight at the screen and and just has that you know just that expression on his face because I you know Gene's probably heard me say this before and you know I I still maintain to this day Superman pissed is damn scary. Yes, it, it is. is. Yeah, and it's and scary. You know, more more angry and more upset than in that particular moment. Right. Yeah. See, the, this is the expression I picture in uh for the man who has everything when he says burn right i right. this yeah. superman right here all right so he flies off and now we get the uh, the cloud faces yes my son it is forbidden for you to interfere one thing i do know son and that is you are here for a reason it is all those things i can do all those powers and I couldn't even save him. And he ignores Jarrell's uh, "You are forbidden" line. And I asked the guys when I when we covered his "quote unquote" training, what what does that line mean to you guys? That he's forbidden to interfere with human history. What does that mean? Because the way I look at it, just his sheer existence interferes with human history. My interpretation is that he is not because Jarrell goes on to say. That he is to set an example for them to strive towards. So he's he is not to take over. He is not to be elite, you know, uh, uh, a head of state. Right. He is not to go into other countries and topple their regime. He is to lead by example. So he's he's forbidden from becoming a monarch, from becoming a dictator. But he is just there to say, hey, you know, if we all just do the right thing, this is what can happen. I, I agree with all of that. But I also, as a kid, and I, I guess right up until now, I, I've always kind of also interpreted it as not only aren't you to change the the course of human history as far as setting yourself up as, as a dictator or a ruler or anything like that, but you're also not to change the course of human history by changing history. Mm. Um, you know, so he wasn't to go back and, uh, and prevent the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, for example, or something like that. So to me, this has always been one of those great missed potential type of things because – I always thought it would be would have been really interesting to see the consequences of him him having done this because that that's the one quibble I do have about this is that at least in this particular film 
there are no consequences to Superman for breaking his father's directive. You know, he's there's a there's such a big deal made about the fact that you are not to do this, and then he does it, and then there's no consequences. Right. Well, here's the thing with that though, Scott. He could have gone back in time and stopped the second missile from hitting at all, but he didn't. The missile still hit. There was still an earthquake. He just went back and mitigated the damage. He made, you know, so the dam didn't break. Right. So Lois, you know, the crack didn't appear, but the Golden Gate Bridge still needed a rescue. The the train track still needed to be repaired. So he changed history in a minor way as opposed to just completely preventing the disaster in the first place. So I'm thinking he listened to both of his fathers. And obviously he stirred. Eh. Well, either way, he stirred to to go back in time Mm. by by the death of his father. First, he hears the "You're here for a reason" uh, line, and then and then he recalls himself saying that all those things I could do with all those powers. And I think this is this justifies the decision to have Christopher Reeve loop Jeffy's lines because you you look at Superman's face and you hear him remember that line. I don't think that would work if. Christopher Reeve didn't say that earlier in the movie. Christopher Reeve kind of had to own that line and not Jeffy's. So I've never heard I've never heard Jeffy's actual speaking voice. So I don't know how close he would have been. Really, he wouldn't have been that close. No, no, he wouldn't have been as close as the the actual guy. You're right, but I don't know if if it if it would have worked. Well, he was seventeen, eighteen yeah. at the time. Clark was so. Yeah, I mean his his voice should have been pretty much set for. What it think, would sound like as an adult. I just think Christopher Reeve had to own that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly, a lot of Jeff East was lost. Jeff Jeff East was just basically Clark from the neck down. He had to wear Christopher Reeve's hair and his nose. Yeah. So he, he goes back in time, and it drives me crazy. People call this spinning the earth backwards. Oh, my God. I was hoping mm. you were going to bring that up because, yeah, that, that makes me nuts. It, well, he, it, it's, not, it, it's not helped by the fact that on the on the soundtrack, John Williams, and I, I presume it was Williams, titled the track Turning Back the World. I, right. I think that hurts the argument that that's not actually what he's doing. Right. But, that, but that's not what he's doing. No, it's the representation of him a, traveling through t- – turning or going backwards in time. Exactly. That's exactly it. He is breaking the time barrier. He himself is is moving backwards through time, and this is meant to be the, the visual representation of that. But unfortunately, yes, people uh, you know, both point this out and, and really scoff at this by going, well, that's ridiculous. You can't just turn the earth backwards, you know, and gravity and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, stupid. That's not really what he's doing. Right. But, you know. So unfortunately, this, this is one of those scenes that doesn't age well, only because it people don't understand what they're supposed to be seeing here. So right. it's it's a lot better than him flying with calendar pages going by him, you know. But yeah, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> well, well, even that, and and that people also give that crap, give the fact, give a lot of crap to the fact that he does go back in time. But I think a lot of people forget this was part of Superman's arsenal at the time this film was made. Oh, he would go through time at the drop of a hat. Right. Yeah. I mean, just look at the Super Friends. You know, once, like, um, when Aquaman and Apache Chief were stuck back in the past, it's like, oh, now I know where they are. I'll just fly back and get them. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> the problem in a lot of those episodes was, yeah, because I just finished covering, I'm still actually recording the episodes, but I did co- release that episode already, is that 
they take a lot of time setting up the villainous plot, and then they have five minutes to resolve it. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. But I do like that this movie showed that traveling through time is an effort. This is not something he can do, you know, because he wants to watch George Washington cross the Delaware. Right. This takes effort. Yeah, you can see the strain. I mean, even more than catching the missile. He is pushing himself to his absolute limit to do this. And even on the reverse shot, when he's going back forward in time, you can see there's a little bit of relief on his face, but still really strained to do this. And how far back do we think he went? Far back enough to save Jimmy, where saving Jimmy still happened. Lois remembers the quake. But did he save Lois and move the car to somewhere else? No, because there's no crack. Right. It's, she's on the same road. What? Here's what I think happened. I think that he went back to just after the missile hit. Okay. And then you have two Supermans. You have the one that's supposed to be there, that was originally there. And once he's done with what he can do at the fault, he goes off and does the savings. And then the Superman from the future comes back and he finishes sealing the fault and stopping the earthquake before it gets any worse. This so, is what happens when you stick the ending of another movie onto another movie. Right. You have and then like at, this. And then at some point, the future Superman catches up with the current Superman and says, hey, listen, you have to go and do this now so that I can exist. <laughs> and you're caught. So. He, the the old Superman becomes the new Superman, etc., 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 and that's why you get him standing at the car because he now knows where she is. He's did, prevented the crack from opening, he's preventing the dam from bursting, and wait, did he? Did, all is wait, right no, with the world. He couldn't have prevented the dam from bursting because he does. Jimmy does acknowledge that Superman left him in the middle of nowhere. Right. That doesn't mean that he didn't save Jimmy from the top of a rumbling dam. Okay. It just means that the dam itself is still physically there. Disclaimer, folks, we are not theoretical physicists. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I thought about this for, for a while. I actually came up with this theory the end of last year. Right. And it just it's the only way I can make Jimmy and Lois's dialogue still work. Right. Is if he went back in time but just mitigated the damage. Didn't prevent everything. Just made it a lot. He took a 10.0 quake down to a 7.0 quake. Lois is alive, but all you folks that are still suffering because of this? No, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so he shows up at the car and Lois goes on this tirade and you can see how much he's enjoying this. Yeah, he's like, I I was going to miss this. (laughs) Hi. Don't bother. I think it's dead. Sure, it's dead. The problem with men of steel, there's never one around when you want one. You know what happened to me while you were off flying around? I was almost in an earthquake. I had this gas station blow up beside my car. There's telephone poles falling all over the road. I'm almost killed and I to top the whole thing off this stupid car runs out of gas. I'm sorry about that, Lois. But I've been kind of busy for a while. I'm sorry. It's all right. <laughs> and... They try to kiss. Jimmy shows up, and Superman leaves. and And I think Lois t- makes a little bit of a leap here. Ah, <sighs> golly, Miss Lane, it's too bad Mr. Kent wasn't here to see all this. Yeah, poor Clark. He's never around when. Clark, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? 
Lois Lane, that is the silliest idea you've ever She starts kind of postulating that Clark might be Superman, but how does she come to this? Yeah, it, it never made sense to me. Clark, Even as a kid, Clark, Clark, Clark be, was always on the East Coast. He was, he was never, never going to be here. <laughs> he, he was never there. Yeah. So how does she get to to this point? Clark is never around when Superman is around. Of course he's not. Clark is 3,000 miles away, or supposed to be. Yeah. So There's never been an instance, really, except for the rooftop scene. Right. And that is done just so impeccably well. In fact, I pointed out to Kira today about, hey, okay, watch this. He leaves there, and then Clark's at the door. Right. One continuous shot, no breaks. How did they do it? You know what her immediate answer was? Oh, well, he just flew around, took his clothes out of the pocket in his cape and got dressed. Most 10-year-olds most ten don't have that. Uh... Right. No, no she, she immediately went to, well, he's Superman. Of course he can do that. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well. And then I explained to her, no, no, no. In reality, <laughs> this is what happened. But that's the only time, the only possibility where Clark and Superman would have been at the same place at the same time. And it's so quick that she wouldn't have any suspicion other than that they're never even close to each other so that's just a throwaway to well she always does this in comics we gotta put it in right yeah and at at the time this is filmed donna thinks he's coming back with superman too and the donna cut has her throwing herself out the window in the opening scene right which i never bought that she was at the point where she believed this enough to throw herself out of a window you have to be pretty committed to your idea to go that far (laughs) yeah no kidding got anything on that scott Scott, are you still here? I didn't realize I was muted. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <yeah. laughs> thought you fell asleep or something. Wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you get, got anything Got anything on our, our theories here? No, I, th- I think they're valid theories. <laughs> and uh, so, like I said, nothing in the narrative that brings it to this point. And then we get the ending where I just love this ending scene of uh, him bringing them to jail and... These two men should be safe here with you now so they can get a fair trial. Who is it, Superman? Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time? I hereby serve notice. He's serving notice to you. That these walls. That these walls here. Will you shut up, please? You. All right, take them away, boys. You, you. This country is safe again, Superman, thanks to you. No, sir. Don't thank me, Warden. We're all part of the same team. Hackman pulling off the wig is such a great moment. Oh, yeah. That's that's something that anyone who knows Lex Luthor was waiting for. Right. Because it's teased all through it. He's always, he's got the different hairstyles. Even even the, the one, the, the, the black uh, hairstyle with the white streak down the side. Right. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. And, you know, he's got the, Julius Caesar's got a wig on top of him. You know, Napoleon's got a wig on top of right. him. I'm... I'm glad he didn't go through the whole movie like that because that would have been too much on Gene Hackman, really, to wear a bald cap the entire time. Well, he was unwilling to do it. Yeah, but he did it once, and that's what matters. I think they declared victory into getting him to shave his mustache. (laughs) Well, Donner just tricked the heck out of him with that one. That was great. Yes, I'll shave mine too. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, one thing I pointed out one of the earlier episodes is that when he's swimming in the pool, he does swim with a wig on. 
because you could see Gene Hackman's sideburns right. point, pointing out from under the under the bathing cap. <laughs> so yeah, I just you know I love the ending with him and the warden, and it's a beautiful way to end the film. And the the, the quote is pure Superman. We're all on the same team. Good night. Absolutely. Yep. That's the perfect thing you would expect Superman to say. Yep. Although I do like that as he skipped uh, processing and booking, brought Luthor right to the penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> well. He knows that you know the the local lockup is not going to be able to hold Lex Luthor for long, right. so they can they can do the booking process at the prison. <laughs> well, it's always possible too that Luthor was an escaped felon because why? I've always wondered why are they chasing him? You know, the scene where the where the two cops try to find his secret lair and everything. Why were they after him to begin with? So I I've always kind of speculated the reason Superman takes him back to prison at the end is that that's where he was supposed to be in the first place. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't think. that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, if this is the the Lex Luthor that has been, well, I mean, he's he's been a criminal for so long that he's got an abandoned, essentially Grand Central Terminal <laughs> type place to live in that's completely decked out, you know, bricked up where it needs to be bricked up. New technology moved in. This is not an overnight thing. So he's right. he's been he's been doing this. For better part of fifteen years, I want to say. Right. So yeah, it's it. He's he's got a rap sheet because the detectives know about him. So yeah, it's it's possible that he's wanted on a number of counts that, including escape from prison. Hmm. Right. You know, if this were the modern times, there'd been like three prequel comics about that. <laughs> <laughs> what Luther did before the movie? <laughs> Why everyone was chasing him, and obviously. You know, you're right. You're talking about the Superman Returns prequel comics. Is that what you're talking about? If this movie were made now, oh, I got okay. There'd be prequel comics explaining why they were after Luthor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that there was never. I mean, I know why, but it's funny that there's never, even to this day, been a an an adaptation of the movie. Because man, did I want one when I was a kid. I I always wanted them to to do a an adaptation of this for the comics, but yeah. Never did to do pay one. Mario Puzo for it. Right. That was that was it exactly. Yeah. Now he's he's no longer around, right? Isn't he yeah. deceased now? So what is it that it, it would well, it would be his interest today? But you know, well, it, it's like the um, the the kids of Siegel and Schuster or Jack Kirby right, or whatever. Right. They uh, the estate. Oh, you did this. It was in the contract that he was supposed to get the money, so you pay us now. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there probably wouldn't be the interest. I mean, any any modern day adaptation they've ever done of a of an older movie like this now just never. I don't know. It just it, it doesn't have that same feel because they they've done yeah. some modern day. They did like Star Trek Two and Tron and stuff like that, and it just I don't know. It comes off as somebody just drawing the DVD essentially. You know, right. well, to, and now I, with, the, with the DVD coming out four months later, mm-hmm. if right. the movie released it, it's kind of pointless. I mean, back then that was the only other way you were getting the movie. Yeah, exactly. Right. It would have been interesting. I mean, it would it would it, it, it would have largely, at least for me as a kid, would have largely depended on who they got to do the adaptation. But I was always hoping that they would do one with, uh, you know, in the in that large, that big oversized format, you know, the big uh, uh, treasury sized right. format, you know, that would be like Garcia Lopez or maybe Ross Andrew or somebody, you know, somebody 
big like that, but we probably would have ended up getting, you know, like Kurt Swan or something. So, you know, not just like Kurt Swan, but, you know, the ones that he ended up doing were not the greatest, you know, film adaptation, yeah. comic book adaptations of, of comic book movies. That we I'm not. So. I, I would actually like to see something like they did with the, the Superman wedding album issue where right. they got right. oh, multiple the, uh... teams of artists to do different sections of it. That right. that would have gone probably, you know, you get uh, someone to do the Krypton scene, someone to do the Smallville scene, someone to do part of Metropolis, someone to do the super feats. You know, it, it would have broken up really well to do uh, all these various styles. We, we did get something kind of close because the um, four, as I recall, four prequels, I think, for Superman Returns. And one of the prequel comics is a pretty straight up adaptation of Superman the movie up to a point. Mm. I can't remember whose who's it was because there, there were four of them and it was like one of them was Lex Luthor, one of them was Lois Lane, I think. So I don't remember which character it was. You know, the, uh, of the focuses that, that did that adaptation, but it was fairly well done. And right. I, I can't remember who had a, a – I think Jimmy Palmiotti is the only name that, that jumps out to me that had a hand in it. So I don't remember, like, who the writers and artists and everything were. But it was okay, and I was really digging it. But it, it's not the full movie by any stretch. It's, uh, it's like the Krypton sequence and – I think like the helicopter sequence and then everything else is, you know, so it, it, it it's kind of piecemeal, if you know what I mean. Right. But yeah. it, was, it was still pretty. It was nice. It just wasn't the, the complete film. But good stuff. I just it, it made me really long for, you know, having gotten the complete thing like I always told when we, you know, when we were when I was a kid. Well, we can't have Scott on and not give him a chance to talk about the score. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that that again. That could be a whole episode too. <laughs> yeah, I I love the score for this right. movie. It is you know one of my absolute top uh, film scores of all time. I mean, you know, this is right in that sweet spot of of John Williams when he was just really firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, and it's and it's sandwiched in you know to really his high point because you know he's just coming off of things like Star Wars and and Close Encounters and about to do um, you know Raiders and The Empire Strikes back and i mean just right in that sweet spot so it's it's a fantastic score you know off the top of my head i I would probably say it's probably my second favorite score of all time um especially from from williams because um you know the only the only other one i can think of that that really you know both equals but also i i think slightly surpasses it would be uh the empire strikes back because i I consider the empire strikes back pretty much a flawless score and superman is, is is definitely right up there what's funny is that uh you know, listening to to Williams talk about it, uh, he doesn't seem to think a lot of it. You know, he really? he he almost to listen to him talk about it, it almost sounds like it was well. You know, I kind of did it as a lark, and he he doesn't. It's not like he's disparaging of his work or anything, but it's almost like he's kind of dismissive of it. Like, eh, you know, it's all right. Uh, you know, it's not the greatest thing I ever did, but I don't know. In a lot of ways, I think it is one of the greatest things he ever did. It's it's just a it's such a fantastic score. And uh, I think it's very telling that, at least to my mind, and I know I'm not alone in this, you know, to my mind, Superman on screen never really feels like Superman on screen without this theme. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You know, 
for all the things, for all the screw-ups that Superman Returns had, and there were a lot of them, right. you know, one thing they got right, they used this theme. Right. Because this theme is it's Superman. And, you know, the the ones that, that you know, the only other adaptations, you know, taking, you know, comics to another medium, for me, that have ever worked are the ones that have either used this or, or tried their very best to not necessarily use it or copy it, but get the same feel, you know, like Superman, the animated series, right. not the William score by any stretch, but you know, they were in that same ballpark. They were in that same vein. So no one else got any closer. Yeah, exactly. No. But, uh, you know, as far as the, the score itself, you know, I, I, I love, I've always loved the main theme. I think the main theme is fantastic. And I was so happy when, um, Gosh, I can't believe it's it's probably it's probably pushing what twenty years ago now. But when uh, Rhino finally put out pretty much the complete score on CD for the very first time, God, I was excited about right. that. I mean, I was like first in line for that. I was so excited because that's an album I'd always wanted. Because the the original release it was a two record release, so it was a lot of music, but. It was a lot of concert stuff, and it, it was nowhere near a complete score. So you didn't even have the helicopter sequence. Oh, it wasn't wow. even on the album. So the helicopter sequence wasn't on there. I mean, there were a lot of moments of the movie that were not on there. And the the main theme that was on there was a like a concert style. So it wasn't the main theme as you hear it in the film, starting with that very low, you know, as the, as the curtains part right. and the boy is flipping through the comic. It wasn't that. It, it started, you know, differently than that. As you know, with a with a you know very like tri- triumphant kind of opening to it, not the soft, subtle opening. So I liked the original album, but I, I love the you know the one that exists now, that complete one where it's pretty much the entire score, um, you know, in film order. And um, but that you know that was another reason why I always loved the bootlegs that I had so much and, and would w- always go to those even though they were grainy they were crappy quality you know they were off of uh, you know a, a bootlegs you know third fourth twentieth generation cut whatever they were I mean they were they were hard to watch because they were not you know good quality video but that was still the version I would watch because those televised extended versions utilized so much more of the Williams score than the actual theatrical movie did because if you ever watched the the actual theatrically released original cuts of Superman or, or like the earliest official re, you know officially released the commercially available um, VHSs there's a lot of the Williams score that gets cut out of those movies that they did not utilize. And that has come back so that now, you know, if you get the, uh, the Blu-ray that's out there, the extent, you know, the official extended version that's out there, just about the complete score is, is back in the movie. And that's, that's great. Cause it's a fantastic score. Uh, and that was another reason, you know, I, I always would go to those versions because, you know, it's, it's just, it's such a good score. And it was a shame that a, a lot of it was lost because the, um, like the rockets, you know, chasing rockets scene. Right. There, there's a lot more music in that part of the movie and, you know, on the album and everything than, than wound up in the finished film. That's why that cut always stood out to me so much because you lost several minutes of music during that cut. So, but yeah, great, great score. Um, trying to think, you know, like off the top of my head, you know, what are my favorite cuts? You know, the main theme, uh, the the helicopter rescue, 
Um, there's one just called Super Feats, you know, right. where he's out on his first night, you know, and, and stops the burglar and rescues the cat in the tree. And then especially when he rescues Air Force One. But uh, if I had to pick one, this might seem like an odd one to a lot of people. But if I had to pick one favorite track off there, it's always going to be Fortress of Solitude, because that's that is my favorite scene of the whole film. Um, I know it's the one that's probably got the least amount of action and everything, but there's something about that. It has a certain mystical quality to it that I, I can't put my finger on, but I get the same feel out of that sequence of the movie where he goes to the North and, and he creates the fortress and he, he learns his heritage and his life mission and, and all of that and the music and everything there. I get the same feel out, out of that as when, you know, Dorothy and the gang went to the Emerald city for the first time and stood before the great Oz. It's, it's kind of that same dreamlike mystical quality to it and it, and it was a little scary and it was revealing and here's where you get the plot and here's where things kind of coalesce it, it's, it's all of those emotions and all of those feelings set to just a beautiful piece of music i mean i i hold that that track fortress of solitude up as as one of my my absolute favorite single pieces of music i, I just think it's beautiful um because it, it really has such a, a wide range in there there's a little bit of action there's a lot of just uh emotion to that music i really like it it's, it's hard to verbalize because it's music but it's it's just great and there's a certain emotion that it evokes that i really like and i that's right that's why i think Williams is the best because he was he he is a master of manipulating your emotions through music, and uh, and I think that's one of the best tracks he ever did that did that. One of, one of the things that I like about the overall score is that there's so many different emotions it brings up. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it, when you, when you hear the main theme, there's a, there's a lot of there's triumph and we you mentioned the mystical stuff with the Fortress of Solid, Solitude track. There's and there's uh, you know suspense when. Uh, He's doing the super feats when it's intercutting with Lois, with the super feats and Lois being buried, and even almost whimsical when he does the villains march. So it right. just seems like there's a lot of different uh, emotions that it's trying to uh, to get out of you. I mean, one, one of, actually one of my favorite, this is not choice too, is I love the villains march. It just yeah. it's just so much fun to listen to. But I will say this though, when the main theme comes on, and and this is one of the few scores where if I hear a piece of the music, it takes me right to that scene in the movie. Like, for yes. instance, I was listening to an episode of Garage Sale Glowed about a month or so ago, and they had uh, the Fortress of Solitude theme on in the car, and I'm thinking, instead of listening to the episode, I'm thinking, that's, that's when the Jarrell Floaty head shows up. <laughs> but, you know, because I have the score on my phone, and if it comes up on random on my phone, I could be having that day at work where I just want to, you know, kind of set everybody around me on fire. I hear that theme, my mood improves. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, and I'm seeing a lot, of, you know, especially I'm seeing a lot of pictures of, uh, you know, McGregor and Honeywell went to see uh, Star Wars in concert. I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for this. I want this. I want to see this movie li- with a li- with a live orchestra. I-, I tell you what, I want more than anything, and I and I do regular searches of the internet for this, and I unfortunately I haven't seen it yet. But you know, this movie turns 40 years old this Christmas season, and uh, man, I want this movie to come back to theaters. I do too. I've never seen it on the big screen. Hey everyone, this is Mike uh, breaking into the uh, show while I'm editing. This episode was recorded before the news that Fathom Events was going to hold 40th anniversary screenings of Superman the movie. I have spoken to both Gene and Scott since then. Scott said he is going to at least one showing, possibly more than one. Gene also said that he is planning on going, probably with his daughter Kira, 
and I am going to the December 3rd showing. I just didn't want it to seem like this episode uh, ignored the fact that the uh, Fathom screenings were actually happening. So, thanks, and back to the show. Ben, there's, there's been such a movement in recent years, at least in this area anyway. I don't know how the rest of the U.S. is faring, but in this area, there, there's been a big movement for as movies are reaching, you know, you know the, the big like genre movies and, and just popular movies, as they are reaching milestone birthdays, they've been coming back to theaters. And we've gotten everything from, you know, Planet of the Apes to Yellow Submarine to, you know, Ferris Bueller coming back to theaters to celebrate these big anniversaries well you know superman you know the movie superman the movie turns 40 man i want to see that on the big screen again even if it's you know just the theatrical version i just want it back on screens again and you know for so many reasons i would love to to sit in the theater again and and be 10 years old again and and see it on the big screen in all its glory and everything but I, i think it's I would hope that it's one of those movies where, uh, you know, dads and grandparents would, would drag their kids and their grandkids to it to see it as well and and, and get it for a whole new generation because I, I think it's important. I, I, I would like there to be more representation out there of of superman in what i feel is is his absolute purest form than just the stuff that kids are getting these days because you know i I don't want to divert us into a tangent on anything but you know (laughs) i i I don't think a heck of a lot of present day iterations of superman i don't find him terribly heroic these days and and this this is his golden moment you know this is when superman was pure superman the way superman's meant to be and and i just would like to see it come back and and you know give give kids a chance to see him you know large and in charge on that giant silver screen again i I think that would be wonderful and i would certainly you know i'd show out some serious money to be able to to sit in that theater seat and and thrill to his adventures again so let's hope it happens i I do like i said i've never seen this on the big screen and i really want to it's fantastic that that helicopter scene. You know, there's there's nothing like that on the on the on the big screen. You know, I mean, we've we've gotten some amazing, absolutely amazing comic book imagery uh, on the big screen, especially in recent years. You know, I, I mean, everything from you know the Avengers and you know just some some incredible. You know, we've gotten the the freaking helicarrier for God's sakes. Right. You know? <laughs> And, you know, Thanos throwing a moon and, you know, all these crazy things. But they're, you know, they're just somehow, at least to my mind, that, you know, you're never going to top Superman catching that helicopter. That's right. still the moment for me is, is, you know, there's just it's that perfect culmination of, of you know, incredibly ingenious inventiveness of practical effect uh, of Chris Reeve reaching that handout and snagging that copter and, and John Williams glorious music comes up and just everything clicked, man. It was just perfect. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that again. It, that never gets old. I could, I could watch that scene so many times and I, and I have, you know, <laughs> it's good stuff. Got any closing points, Gene? I have to follow that again. Again. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking as one who's never seen it on the big screen, I would love you know for Fathom Events or whoever to bring it back for the 40th anniversary, followed up the following December by Star Trek The Motion Picture. But this is one of those movies where I could watch it at any time, any situation, no matter where in the movie it starts, I will watch it till the end. 
Mm-hmm. It is right. just that good a film. Yes, it has. You know, it's got you need the mental gymnastics to do some stuff like with the traveling through time thing. But I think people like us are the only ones really doing the mental gymnastics. Yeah, because we overthink everything. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just got it's so much good in this movie from the score, from the casting, from the writing, from the direction, from the cinematography. It's it's just wonderful. It is between 75 and 85. The number of brilliantly done movies is especially genre movies. It's just this golden 10 years. Yep. And this is right there smack right. in the middle of it. And it's wonderful. It, it is it is one of my favorite movies across all different kinds. Right. So it, I'm ju- I'm just glad that I had an excuse to watch it again. Thank you, Mike. You should never <laughs> need an excuse to watch it again. Uh, well, part of part of it was for this. Part of it was Michelle was asleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, you know, this is one probably the first time Kira watched it with me. For the whole movie, and that is that is just a, a glorious moment for me. And she enjoyed the whole thing, asking questions, making some wonderful observations. Go to my Facebook page if you want to see that. Right, and it, it's just it, it's always a good time to watch it. I just I need to be able to work it in somehow. It's it's a timing thing, not an interest thing. Right. When I start when I started the podcast two years ago. This, deciding that this is what it was going to be. Superman through time. I had to make a decision not to watch ahead. Yeah. So I purposely kind of told myself no for as long as it takes, I couldn't watch this movie because I didn't want to get ahead of the podcast. I broke that only when the extended edition came out because there was no way I was getting that disc and not watching it. <laughs> that was that was the only time I broke it. And now you've watched it, what, five times for the podcast? Oh, God. Well, <laughs> b- b- believe it or not, I haven't actually sat and watched the movie in one sitting. Oh, okay. Because basically, I, bro- I broke it into pieces, so basically what I did was... <laughs> and this was the first time I watched the theatrical cut since the director's cut came out. Mm. So, apparently I have a, I had some false memories with the theatrical cut. I always thought the uh, there's a line in the planet when she asked Clark if there are any more at home like you. I always thought that was added. Apparently it wasn't. Apparently, no. it, was always, apparently it was always there. <laughs> Not but, really, no. <laughs> so basically what I did was I would watch the uh, theatrical cut as I took my notes... Then watch the director's cut with the uh, commentary, mm. and then put in the uh, extended cut to watch the same segment. So I think before I edit all these episodes, I'm going to sit down and watch the uh, three hour version just all the way through, just to uh, w- not, with no computer, no nothing, just to uh, kind of awash myself in the movie, just to actually watch, the watch movie. it, and uh, <laughs> be swept away by it. Yeah, and and pray because I, I watch everything after everybody else goes to bed. Oh man, pray I don't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> it always happens. I hit sometimes I hit that couch and next the credits roll, the opening credits roll. Next thing I know, it's, it's four in the morning credits. and the movie's over. <laughs> but that's all I've got. I'd like to thank both of you guys for for joining me on this Saturday night. Thank you for having us. Yes, it was great. I really enjoyed this. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, this, this, this was, you know, when I sent out that message to everybody back in, uh, I think it was early May. I think. You know, I expected half the people in that to just uh, leave the conversation immediately. <laughs> and everybody showed interest. Obviously, I couldn't schedule everybody. The logistics just couldn't happen. So, so some people dropped out. But 
I was amazed. I was amazed by uh, by the response that I got from everybody, and there was panic after that. I was like, I see all the people said they're interested. I'm like, oh my god, how am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this is the last recording, so it, once we sign off, there'll be that relief that the recordings will be hanging over me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll all be done and ready to go in October. So I like to thank not only you guys but everybody who's uh, who's joined me. Next time, I'm going to be uh, discussing the extend the cut with my friend uh, Tom Benya, my uh, oldest friend from school. The best analogy is uh, if I'm if I'm you, Scott, he's my Chris Honeywell. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he's been my friend since the eighth grade, and we actually became friends because of Superman. We were both That's sitting. Awesome. Yeah, we were sitting in a. I mean, it was Lois and Clark that brought us together because I heard him quoting a, a line from it in, in a movie theater. We started talking, <laughs> and from there we became best friends. So that's cool. So. It is, and I like to needle him, it's Superman's fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so guys, so where can uh, the listeners find you? Gene, the listeners find, or whoever wants to go first. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to follow him again, so I'll go first. All righty. <laughs> well, as you, as you mentioned before, I do run the Two True Freaks Twitter feed, which is at... T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. And that I, I basically just repost every episode that we get and maybe I'll retweet some stuff. But it's mainly just, you want all the Two True Freaks episodes? Go there. The main place you can find me personally is every Thursday at thehammerstrikes.com, which is my weekly geek blog. Like I said, I wrote something about the time travel portion of Superman the movie way back in 2017. And it can basically... I jump around. It's whatever topic post you know pops into my head. Anything from planning our next vacation, so you can see the, my step by step process. If you want to follow the same thing, to just ranting on idiots using their cell phones during a dance recital. Uh, <laughs> I have a number of podcasts, most of which are on hiatus right now. Uh, the Hammer Podcast, which is basically the vo- vocal version of the blog, uh, the Quantum Cast, which I just pulled out a couple quasar issues to read today so that's uh that's on the horizon and anime freaks which i do with dr bill robinson uh that's on hiatus for life basically but we review anime if you like star blazers go back there uh there will maybe possibly if i can get the correct blackmail photos be an episode of that with scott gardner coming out at some point (laughs) (laughs) And I'm all over Facebook, Twitter, etc. You can always find me at The Hammer Strikes and go from there. So, follow that, Scott. Um, I will be gathering dust in that (laughs) corner right over there. You're on Back to the Bins, aren't you? (laughs) Uh, Occasionally. Occasionally. Well, we we all know what it took to get Scott on here. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was a week of will he, won't he. <laughs> and we're, we're about to confirm that Scott was actually on the show because Mike and I both agreed when the call ends, we will believe that Scott will be there. <laughs> this is why the epi- this episode graphic is not done yet. <laughs> the special guest has not been filled in yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll bring a feather duster and we'll eventually we'll dust Scott off when, when this episode comes out in October. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you're looking for me, well, guess what? I'm right here. You found me. I'm also on uh, Fear of the Walking Dead cast when we get around to talking about that. We're not doing as many episodes as we used to do, just because we don't want to be bothered reviewing every episode. The show's not that good anymore. <laughs> so it's for your sanity is what you're saying. 
that, yeah, I guess. It's, I think, more for, for McGregor's sanity than anything else. Mm. You know, aside from that, uh, you want to send me some feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the uh, Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast into your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's called these days. Over, you find it over there. And until, until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the two true freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. This is the expression I picture in uh, for the man who has everything when he says "burn." Right, I right. picture this yeah. Superman right here. Fucking cat! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's got to go in the bloopers at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> there might be a live cat death on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I was once on a show where somebody's house was on fire, so there you go. Yeah, yeah that, that one's hard to top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was wrong? Oh, well, there's just a little fire. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Yeah, the, the cat's going to hide now, as well she should.